Welcome. You found the people of Chattanooga Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today, I talked to Jeremy Weaver. Uh, he is one of the founders of Wind River Tiny Homes, which uh, I think at one point was one of the most popular tiny house builders. They were super new. They were really early on tiny homes. Um, they Jeremy has a passion for tiny homes. He built his own. Um, out of a fifth wheel chassis and there's actually an episode of him on the tv show tiny house nation Uh, i think it's on fyi network Um, he also did a one-year fellowship for causeway here in chattanooga where he worked with the city and tried to get a tiny house community uh installed for lack of better terms um here in chattanooga um as you can tell that wasn't successful uh, because we don't have one but he tried and we talk a lot about that and learn about the red tape and the issues with tiny houses and building code and all that nerdy stuff that I love Um, he's also a huge traveler we talk about traveling quite a bit Uh, he he took about a year off of his life and traveled around the world with a buddy um, going to over 40 countries and that's that's really fun to hear uh, some stories and his perspective on all the places that he went to. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Weaver, tiny house expert and traveler. I'm here with Jeremy Weaver today. Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> He was just turning his phone off. Not much. How you doing, Jamie? I'm good. Uh, so, what should we talk about? Uh, what should we talk about when I first met you? Yeah, you were um, you were you had a model house, a model tiny house from Wind River uh-huh. at the Walking Bridge. Yep. And you were showing it off to the city, and I think the mayor was looking at it. He was. What was that project all about? Um, so that was 2016. Yeah, four years ago, man. It was probably, let me think, would have been like maybe July or August, maybe, something like that. Yeah. Um, of 2016. And it it was, uh, I was actually doing a fellowship with Causeway, which is a local nonprofit. If you're listening to the People of Chattanooga podcast, you probably know what Causeway is, but it's a local nonprofit focused on Chattanoogans that have good ideas to benefit Chattanoogans, basically, is a... I think that's their elevator pitch or my version of it. Um, and so I, I've been doing tiny house stuff for the last handful of years. Um, since about 2014, um, started a company and ran that. And so I'd been thinking a lot about tiny house communities, specifically, uh, you know, downtown urban communities, um, just because it's, that's where it's challenging to do, but it's also where there's a lot of, you know, possible potential for utilizing the mobile tiny house platform in interesting and, and perhaps beneficial ways. So anyways, that, that was what the fellowship was about with Causeway was, um, thinking about like, you know, thinking about that stuff, putting together some, um, some white papers. Um, and, and actually my, my goal was to get a, you know, to start physically developing a community, ideally, you know, um, I ran into a lot more, re- I should have known cause you know, it's like dealing with, 
you know, zoning and building codes and, you know, sort of local government bureaucracy and things like that. I should have known that it would have not been just like wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. But, but, uh, but anyways, and it's not a, it's, it's a new idea. There's no tiny house zoning on the books right now. So that's, there's, um, yeah. You want to, you want to dive deep into zoning? Let's go. Right from the the get go. Let's do zoning. (laughs) That's uh, okay. Um, well, let me just finish what I was saying. So, so anyways, Causeway was kind enough. I mean, um, Causeway is great. And they, they, I don't know if they doing, they're doing their fellowship. They've, they've done it on and off, like where they essentially, you pitch them your idea of what you think would really benefit Chattanooga and what you want to get accomplished. And, um, and then they, you know, essentially they, they fund you for a year to, to do that work. So anyways, that's what I was doing. And so that was all part of that. That was that we had wind river had a tiny house and we brought it downtown to the, we actually tried to put it on the Walnut street bridge at first, but we figured, I think I calculated that it was going to be fine. It was going to hold it just fine, but it was like close enough, you know, to the weight limits as far as point loads go for the Walnut street bridge that I was like, ah, I don't like, that would be not a great headline or maybe a great headline. I honestly, in retrospect, maybe would have gotten us like national, yeah, you know. I mean, if the walking bridge fell. Right, if there's would, like cell phone footage of, of a Wind River tiny home, you know, falling through the walking bridge. Yeah, and floating like, by the aquarium. As long as there was no one, no deaths, it would have been good. Yeah. PR probably. Okay, so um, you were, so the reason that you had that there was that was, was that towards the end of the fellowship? Yeah, it, it was to spark discussion. And, like and a pitch for the city. Exactly, and to, and to show that like, because we had built a fairly urban looking, it was a very Chattanooga-esque sort of, sort of um, industrial with some rustic accent like you see a lot in the downtown. And so we just wanted to basically like get a tiny house in the downtown, get as many people through it as possible and kind of like get people to understand that like a tiny house is not an RV, a tiny house is not a mobile home. It's This is a different animal. And this is something that like a lot of people could see themselves in if you stand in the space, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and we I, I had been in contact with a lot of government officials, um, Got the mayor came out and walked through it. So kind of like the, you know, the Chattanooga, you know, uh, leadership, you know, a lot, a lot of them kind of came and walked through the tiny house. And, and so anyways, the, the main goal was to essentially like uh, put it in a physical way in people's minds. Like, oh, 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 okay. Like this is cool looking, you know, this is actually well, you know, it's really attractive and could be, could be an asset. So anyways, that was, that was the idea. So you want to go back to zoning? Sure. Let's do zoning. Why? So you did this fellowship and it sounds like maybe it didn't pan out how you wanted as far as getting. Yeah, we didn't get a physical, we didn't get anything physical, physical built. Um, it's, so now, now we're, you know, I think, I think tiny houses are starting to get normalized a little more into in people's minds, you know, like pretty much everyone knows what one is at least now. Yeah. At least a term you've seen. it. Yeah. And it was getting that way in 2016, but it was still a little bit like, and it still is to this day. I mean, it's like people are just afraid of like, Oh, this thing's on a trailer. Oh, it's a mobile home. It's like people immediately, you know, pull up these connotations and negative associations that maybe apply, but, but don't necessarily apply to tiny homes, you know? So, so anyways, there was, there was resistance. There was a couple pieces of property that we were looking at that pretty hard. And the goal was to, um, the goal was to, uh, partner with the city ideally on the land piece and then uh, potentially bring in some private investment or some private, you know, 
um, buy-in for the actual development of the tiny homes. And um, so anyways, we didn't get, because, because it was proved quite difficult to get anyone to play ball with the land piece, it, you know, just basically just the actual development didn't happen. But I don't, I mean, I, I don't count it a full, you know, full failure. Like I, I, there was a lot of, of um, there was a lot of, I, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if I changed so many people's minds, but at least I think I made a lot of people aware of the potential um, and of what a community could do and what it could look like and how it could function within the fabric of a developing city. Um, and so I did a lot, you know, I, I, I think, I think it was a, I think it was a, in some ways a success, you know, that, that year at Causeway. So what, what were some of the zoning hurdles that you ran into? Yeah. So in this would apply probably to a lot of places, um, like Chattanooga, small cities, or even, I mean, larger cities, you're going to run into even more extreme versions of this, but you essentially have to, there is no clean zoning we'll call it a motif is sort of the industry jargon um so like uh, zoning uh allocation so like whether that's an r1 r2 r3 c1 c2 c3 so so what the lot is zoned as there's no clean zoning motif that tiny houses fit into in most places especially most urban places so you kind of have to you either have to repurpose the closest thing to what works which in Chattanooga's case would be R5, but you don't really find that in the urban, in the urban anywhere close to the urban downtown. And what is R5? So R5 is mainly designed for um, mobile homes, modular, well, yes, mobile homes more or less, RV parks, mobile homes. So multiple units that aren't attached to the ground by a foundation, by a traditional foundation or a permanent foundation. So. You can find R5 zone stuff. You know, most of it's going to be in the county, farther out, away from the city. You know, maybe you found something that was an old RV park or an old mobile home park and you could repurpose that as a tiny house. That's sort of the slam dunk. You know, it's going to be called things, it it might be called not, it might be called something different in different um, cities or different states or whatever. But you're going to find some sort of a zoning that's meant for mobile homes or for RV parks. And that is sort of the slam dunk situation. If you can find something that used to be an RV park that's got all the hookups already in place, you know, and all the plumbing in place, is like that. That's sort of a slam dunk scenario for a mobile, a mobile tiny house um, community. Community. We'll but, call it a community. Community. Yeah. But they're not. But but obviously that's not going to be downtown. right. So right. So that's the problem be- you run into is you know. You, and there's a lot of resistance, say, in, Ch- in Chattanooga and in a lot of places. And, you know, I can see the reasoning behind it uh, to, to rezone stuff as R5 because people are not wanting more mobile home parks and wanting less mobile home parks. So so the city is going to be really hesitant to, like, do a full rezone to an R5 because, like, they may be on board as uh, – that was one of the things that was really – not shocking, but like I was pleasantly surprised by is like almost everyone I interacted with and have ever interacted with at the city level and government, whatever, they're like super supportive and like think it's a really good idea. Like fun, like, you know, but it's like, okay, then if I said, okay, but I want to put this two doors down from you, then they're like, oh, but uh, uh, that's a great idea, but like go do it on the other part of the city, you know, like, oh, like, so the NIMBYism really NIMBY is, um, N I M B Y not in my backyard for the listeners that don't know. So anyways, it's, that's very real. Like people are, are intellectually on board all day long, but like, then you're like, well, I want to put it like the next block over from you. 
Well, uh, uh, I don't know. It's uh, we want to repurpose that land for. Da, da, da. We have it earmarked for. Yeah. Then you get all that jargon and the you know the backpedaling, but um, is, uh, is that because they really? I mean. Do you believe them when they say they really want it or they think it's a great idea? But when, when push comes to shove, you hear the, eh, is yeah, that? I think so. Okay. I think so that that's, that's where you run into the, like, that's where I really ran into the resistance is that like when it comes to putting the boots on the ground and say, okay, okay, great. We all agree that this could, that this is cool, that this could serve a purpose for yeah. certain groups of people as affordable transitional housing, transitional, transitionally developing areas of the city that are slightly distressed, but, but are probably going to get developed in the next five years. So essentially priming the pump for like, like look at South side, um, like South side in the, what is it? Like the, the late aughts, the early, you know, the early 2000, you know, somewhere between 2010 and 2015 really started to take off, you know, South side did. Before that, though, it was like there was a lot of like vacant lots and like buildings that were derelict and stuff like this. But like right in that transitional period of, say, like a five year window there, there was like people moving there um, that that um, they were they were converting old buildings. But there was a bunch of vacant lots. And so there's that there's that weird interim space where it's like there's not the infrastructure for a ton of people to move there yet but a lot of people would like to move there because it's like starting to get cool where like a tiny house community if you have a, sp- a, a part of the city like the south side it's got a b- bunch of vacant lots you got a bunch of developers that are that or owners of those lots that are just sitting on those lots a lot of the times waiting for the property values to rise so they're either going to develop or they're going to sell that down the road and they're having to pay taxes on that they're having to pay fees whatever fees are associated with actually owning that lot and it's a lot of times just sitting there you know vacant getting overgrown not nice looking but like if you had if you had a uh if you had a essentially um process set up for turning a lot like that into a um, mobile home tiny house community so like putting in some putting in a, a single lateral line like you would put in for say a, a quadplex or a, a, you know like something like that and you branch off you know four four branches off that then all of a sudden you can turn like a double lot into a spot for four tiny houses and then that line that you put that main line you can put in could be reused when the lot gets eventually developed so that's not lost money that's not lost investment the electrical that you put in is not going to be lost investment because that'll be used to hook the house up so what i'm saying is you could turn you could transitionally develop a piece of property say for five years five to ten years and be getting revenue like the developer could be getting revenue from that lot the lot would be taken care of that area would have good paying ten, you know by and large the people interested in high-end tiny homes are are you know well educated are um are people that a uh, someone that was a landlord would want as a tenant you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. um hard-working people you know you, you find people that are you financially know, stable financially stable people and responsible people and so anyways so when you when you lay that case out like to your, what you were saying before people are like oh yeah that's a great idea. Like that's, Oh yeah, for sure. Like we should totally try that. Chattanooga could be the first place where it's this, da, da, da. And then you're like, okay, okay, well I've got these 10 lots and the city owns, you know, them like, yeah. okay, which one of these can we use? You know, then it's like, well, this one, uh, uh, you know, so, so you actually even found the, you found the lots. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Right. I had a list of, I had a specifically, I, I still have 
I probably still have the Google. I made it in Google Maps. Like I made a I made a list of properties. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot a lot of time like really digging into the Hamilton County GIS and looking at the owners and like I found a hand I found thirty lots that would have made really good tiny house um, tiny house communities. Um, some of them were another use. Some of them were brownfield sites. So so ones that don't have inherently anything dangerous on the surface. But say like five, 10 feet down, there's maybe there was a, like there was, there's a, a site over off of MLK or near MLK in that area that had a, some sort of a refinery, metal refinery or something like this. So they had been pumping, they had been pumping the slag and the, and the waste down into these wells that they had drilled. So on the surface, it's completely fine. You know, there's no measurable, like there's not toxic levels or measurable pollutants on the surface, but like down 30 40 50 90 feet is this is basically like you know toxic waste and so it's that site can't be used like because when you put a when you put a deep foundation in for say a high rise you're going to be digging down a ways to put a foundation in and that and so essentially it makes that it's a huge parcel it's like it's like six acres or something like this and this is like prime mlk you like apartment buildings going up all around it but this site can't be used it could be used for a mobile tiny house community because you don't have to put foundations in. You're not disturbing the soil, so you could you could you know you could put a shallow water line in. Um, there's even anyways yeah you could put a shallow water line in, electric line in. It wouldn't be disturbing down to the level where there's waste, and you could use that lot. This, that's that's one of the city on lots. Is, is is the city afraid of if they go with your idea? Um, and it works, um, being able to back out and rechain the zoning after five years or 10 years. That's, when every- that's always a concern to what, people. Yeah. Did you explore that option with them? Like, hey, let's try this for five years. Let's rezone it for five years. And then we'll come back to the, um, I don't know, the, the the zoning board and see if we can get approved for another five years after yeah. a- after we're in place. Did- so the way they would probably, the way that would probably work um, and I don't want to, so just to be clear, I don't want to come across as I'm poo-pooing the city or the city officials. They were lovely to work with, you know, like by and large, they were very open. They were very generous with their time listening to, but it's like, this would be a problem anywhere. Like, and this is just people being like hedging against a potential downside of something like this, sure. which I completely understand. So I don't want to come across as like, I'm angry at anybody or I'm poo-pooing them or anything. Um, but but yeah, so the way you would do that is you wouldn't change the zoning. You would do a, you would get a variance on a specific, for a specific use for just that person. So it doesn't extend to in perpetuity of the parcel. So that's, that's people's concern. Like when you talk to, when you talk to people at the, um, uh, the zoning office or the, it's really the zoning office. These people are thinking a hundred years down the road. Like they don't want to rezone something, um, that, they think of all the potential, like the third and fourth and fifth and sixth owners of that parcel and what they could potentially do with that and what's, and how that's going to shape the city as a whole, how that's going to shape, you know, different communities within the city and whether businesses are going to be businesses that are maybe not conducive to being right next to residential neighborhoods would be able to be right next to residential neighborhoods, even though like this guy that's wanting to get rezoned is not wanting to do that. But like, who's gonna who's gonna stop the next guy once the zoning's changed? So yes, they're thinking that way. But you can do like you can get a variance, like I said, on just on just that one person that like 
you know, say I buy a piece of property, I can get a variance to use it for a specific purpose, but that only extends to me. That doesn't extend to the person I sell it to. Then the zoning stays the same. The other thing you can do is, is do what's called a PUD, a planned unit development, which essentially is, um, it's, it's sort of like a variance, but essentially you present, okay, you know, say it's a tiny house community, you, you, you create plans for that. So you create a, you know, sort of a landscape design plan, a layout of the, what the community is going to look like with specifications, you know, how you're going to landscape it, how the water lines are going to work, all that stuff, the layout of the houses. And then you submit that before, um, I want to say it's probably the, I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to muck up the, bo- anyways, you, su- you submit that to, you submit that to the city and they say, yes, oh, our regional planning yeah, authority, it RPA, could be, it could be the RPA. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, but anyways, then they say, yes, you can, you can do this plan. You can build this community that you're proposing on this parcel. We're not going to change the zoning. We're essentially, it's essentially an overlay to the, to the actual zoning. Yeah. If that makes sense, it does. so the zoning doesn't change, but it just it gives you more latitude. It made you, it you lets see, you. Do- that's what you see with the big projects, like that yes. awesome project right. that's yep. happening and mm-hmm. potential stuff for the U.S. Pie Factory. Right. So that's the way. That's the way that you get around that. Yeah. Where you don't have to change the zoning, you don't have to worry about the repercussions down the road, and that's what I was going to go for. You know, that's kind of the angle I was taking with the zoning piece. Um, there's a bunch of other interesting zoning motifs that maybe would more apply for small houses on foundations, not necessarily on, um, trailers, even though there's ways to do trailers that they actually can sit, they can be considered a foundation. Anyways, I mean, I, don't yeah, know if stra- you I mean, go down those strap r- them down. Is that basically yeah, strap so, them to the right? So, well, okay. Points. So specifically in Chattanooga, and again, this may apply to others. I'm sure this applies to other cities. It's going to be called something different probably, but, um, uh, Austin, actually, there might be a lot of similar zoning motifs because I think the guys that, that did the plan for Austin also did the same, did the plan for the, the company that was hired to do the, the, um, the zoning, the rezone that happened, I think it was in 2016, I want to say. Form-based code, form-based code, form-based re- code. rezone um, of the downtown. They, I want to say, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they did Austin before they did Chattanooga. And then they came and did Chattanooga. So I'm sure a lot of the motifs would be similar in Austin and you'd find maybe similar things in other progressive um, cities. But there's, there's, there's a, there is RTZ, RT1, um, which are essentially allow you to have really small lot sizes. And essentially, I don't remember if it's RTZ or RT. So it's residential townhome um, zoning. Um, and they essentially do away with or, or they do away with setbacks too on the sides of the houses so essentially you can have houses you can build a house a foot from one another and right up to the lot line and and you can subdivide down to like a quarter of the size you could subdivide lots to before so what that would let you do is essentially buy a normal size parcel say a half acre chop it into four pieces and then build four really small units, say 500 square foot units. And you could, if you had to, you could put them right next to each other. Um, and what I was saying with the foundations is you can, so you can build a trailer however you want to build a trailer. Like you can have a trailer built with removable axles. Like you could put torsion axles on them, which is just four bolts attaching the axle to the chassis. And the shock absorption is actually in the axle. So it's like super fast and easy to remove axles. And so essentially you build the tiny house with regular hookups, with flushing toilet, everything to code. You have the inspector 
Uh, you, I mean, if you could work with your local building inspection department and they actually came out and inspected that tiny house as it was getting built and expected it all to regular building codes, they could treat it even like a modular home, you know, cause like modular homes are just regular, they're, they're built to regular building code standards. Um, different than mobile homes. Yeah. Different than mobile homes. Mobile okay. homes would be HUD, H U D, um, housing and urban development. That's federal. Um, and the factories are inspected and then the local guys, they only will inspect the like electrical hookups, the, the hookups. water, like that stuff. Yeah. But the, the building itself is inspected at the factory level. So with modular stuff, it's different, different places. Sometimes you're working with the local building guy and maybe they'll do a, they'll do a factory inspection. Um, sometimes you get uh, modular, um, manufacturers that are certified themselves and they have a, a third body that comes and makes sure that they're, that they're, um, uh, st- you know, keeping their building practices up to par. Anyways, what I'm saying is you could, you could build a tiny house, treat it as a single unit modular home. It'd be inspected by a building apart, building department, meeting, meeting normal building code standards of, of, of the house we're sitting in same house, you know, same standards. Um, and you could still build it on a trailer. So for all intents and purposes, and, th- and then you essentially move it to the site, you know, remove the axles re- with, you know, take the bolts out, remove the axles, take the tongue off with, you know, four bolts per each side of the tongue and bolt it, you know, like affix it permanently to a foundation, a pier foundation or a slab foundation. However, you, I mean, there's multiple ways you could do it. Hook it up in a permanent way to, pl- to plumbing and to electrical. Um, and essentially you could have a mobile house that would serve for all intents and purposes, exactly. It would be exactly the same as a foundation built house. It was just built in a factory, like a modular house is, and that's, that would be a perfectly legal way to do it. It would be a little non-traditional. So you would have to work with your building. It would, it would fall within all the parameters. You would just have to get the yes from your building codes department, essentially. And I verbally, the building and zoning in Chattanooga were like, Oh yeah, like, I think we could do that probably, you know? So it, it wasn't necessarily a building in a, a, a building or a zoning issue in Chattanooga. It was a, like getting a piece of land. land. Right. Exactly. That, that would work. Um, so it's getting the land, right? If you had, um, you did the one year fellowship. If you had a second year tacked on, do you think you could have, uh, Got we could have got it started, yeah. You think it could have got to, the, so. to the actual, here's some land, you guys can try this? Yeah, because towards the end, I basically gave up trying to go the like official like work work with uh, with the city government route. Um, and I was, I was essentially just trying to see if we could just go private, like do a private route with it and just raise a little money and, and do it. And that would be way faster, um, you're, you know, if you're just buying a piece of property and, and, and as long as zoning and zoning and building are on board, you know, the zoning and building departments are on board and you can get it done as far as the financing goes. Then I don't think there would have been, there would have been hurdles, but there wouldn't have been any, you know, major shutdowns. I don't think. Um, so what, what got you so interested in tiny houses? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, you're a big guy. You're like, how tall are you? You're six, 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 six. And, uh, I don't know how far back do you want to go. So, so I was in med school. Um, I went to med school for a year, and instead of like studying, like this was like 2011. It's after I came back from when I when I traveled for a year, and um, and I started getting really interested in van conversions. So I was I was miser I was miserable. Like it wasn't 
so it was it was difficult it was difficult academically but it wasn't that it was difficult the reason i was miserable it was um it was it was the feeling that you have that you're in the wrong place and you know it but it's like there's so much behind you getting there that it's like it's hard to pull the ripcord it's like i my whole academic career up to that point had been leading to med school so yeah they call that pot committed in the gambling yeah or world. uh the the sunk cost fallacy yeah. is the psychological yep. like like term that people use so and that's totally what it was and honestly one of the things that got me to pull the ripcord on med school there was a youtube video i'd actually love to look it up i don't know if you have show notes but we could put it in the show notes yeah. there's there's a there's a youtube video that i watched and it's it was basically explaining the sunk cost fallacy and i was like oh that's exactly the situation i'm in like i've I've committed all this, these, this time and literal capital. Like I have student loans now for a year of med school. And, but I know, I know that I know that I know that I know that like, I don't want to actually be a doctor for the sake of being a doctor, you know, like, and it took me the whole year to pull the ripcord. So by the end of the year, I pulled the ripcord and, but in the meantime, instead of studying, like I just wouldn't go to class. It was great. Cause like, this is how I did college. Like, but in college they have attendance. So you have to like figure out how to like, you know, how to, how to navigate that whole attendance thing. But at the med school I went to, they didn't have attendance. So instead of going to like all my friends would go to four hours of class in the morning, half of them would like sleep or play video games and then they would go and study all afternoon. So I would just spend the time they were sleeping in the morning studying. Like I would just read through all the material and, and I'd do better that way anyways. Like I, um, I learned best reading, you know, and, and looking at charts and like, like I'm more of a visual learner. So, so anyways, I would, I would study like for four to six hours in the morning and then all afternoon I would just do whatever. Um, and so, so researching, uh, it started off as van conversions and bus conversions and like RV conversions. Cause like, I was just like, so antsy just to like do anything else besides what I was doing. And, uh, and then that led to tiny houses. That was kind of right when they started to get popular. Like that would have been like just pre the TV shows. That would have been like, like the first TV show was like end of 2000, like fall of 2013, I want to say, Tiny House Nation. And this would have been like 2011, 12, like in that in that range. So, but they were starting to like really sort of get popular on the internet. And so I just started dreaming about, well, for me, it was like dropping out of med school and then like, you know, living in a van and driving around the country and like potentially, I, I really seriously actually to the point of like calling and trying to get interviews and stuff. Uh, was 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 considering hot shotting and then eventually maybe smoke jumping. Oh man, um, smoke jumping probably wouldn't worked out because I'm actually taller than the you have six five is the cutoff. So they maybe may would have made an exception, but but anyways, I was considering hot shotting to pay off my student my student loans from med school, and then and living in a van and stuff in the meantime. And for people that don't know, hot shotting is. Jumping out of a helicopter. Smoke jumping is jumping out of an airplane to fight forest fires. Yeah, exactly. Hot shotting is the same thing, but you're generally not jumping out of a okay, plane. Okay, you're just you're, running in. Right. It's the guys that are driving around with, with trucks and doing yeah. wild, wild um, out west, out west, right? Yeah, Montana and Colorado and all the all those western states, Northern California. Um, so, anyways, that was what I spent a lot of my time researching, and I had built, I I'd done construction like since I was like in my early teens, you know, just like from, we did a big renovation on my house. It was always my summer thing. I just had kind of picked it up. You know, my dad's really handy. It taught me a lot of stuff. Um, and so anyways, I just, I just personally started getting very interested in it 
in 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 the small living um what the possibilities were i'm just by nature a fairly um like i, I always hesitate to use the word minimalist because it's just so overused but like I, my needs are a few, like I don't need a lot of things, you know, to be, to feel like a balanced and happy person. And I'm not saying that as like a pat on my own bat, because I do think there's just a huge variation. Like there are some people that shouldn't, they like, they should have a little more stuff because they just feel they're more balanced and sane if they have, you know, say X amount versus someone else could be happy with Y amount, you know, but anyway, so that turned into me dropping out of med school, came back here because I was dating a girl in this area. And, um, and that's when the t- <laughs> we started getting serious, you know, engaged, all that. And that's when it really got more tiny houses because that was a little more like acceptable. Like getting married and live in a van was not as like, it just, you know, that was, that was more of a stretch, I think, for she actually would have done it. She she told me she would have, you know, been fine doing that. But the tiny house thing just seemed a little more like, oh, like he hasn't completely, you know, he's not living in a van down the other river. It's a tiny house down by the river kind of a thing. So, so anyways, um, I was working construction and a buddy of my, uh, my, a buddy of mine that I was working with at the time was also really interested in tiny houses. And so like we'd be building these, you know, three, four or 5,000 square foot houses, you know, like, and I remember one particular one conversation we had, we were in this attic space of this like, um, like it was, a, it was over a 4,000 square foot house. And the attic space was like 1,700 square feet of just empty attic space. Like, and some, and in some points of the attic was, had like nine feet of headroom. Like just the design was just like, it was like you literally built two houses. Like you literally built the house and then there's a whole vacant house Dead. above your house that's just not being used. An unfinished house. An unfinished. And we literally were calculating how many tiny houses you could fit in this unfinished attic space at one point. Anyway, so that turned into like, he, he was like pretty serious about, he had, he had actually started building, Travis Pike is his name, he had started building a tiny house for him and um, like nights and weekends and I would help him every now and then and stuff. And it just really got me like in the doing mode more than just the thinking about it mode, which is sort of my traditional downfall is just thinking about things ad nauseum and not doing them. But, um, um, so anyways, that, that turned into us, that turned into him, someone, one of his friends asking him to build a tiny house for them. And then we just started talking about like, Hey, you know, what would it be like to just start our own business? And <clears throat> essentially just, it didn't happen. Like, I mean, it wasn't some big official, like ribbon cutting blah, blah, blah. it was just kind of like oh we've got a client oh, okay i'll i'll handle the business side of things you've already got a website up and you kind of have a business already started so i'll come on and i'll we'll kind of split 50 50 i'll i'll handle essentially sales and business and like that's kind of naturally my inclination and he didn't want to you know really worry about that side of things and he would handle all the design construction side so anyways we started with like one house for a friend and our two houses were kind of our first three builds and then during that process, well, I mean, we, we had our bills, or we had our house built, uh, Tiny House Nation reached out to us. And so my wife and I built our house as an episode of Tiny House Nation. How did they find out about you to reach out? <coughs> um, I want to say just probably online. I mean, because we hadn't put out anything. We had a website. Yeah. Is this Wind River Tiny Houses? Tiny Wind homes? River Tiny Homes, yeah. Yeah. So we had a website and... And, um, they, I remember now actually, so 
there we had only had a website for maybe a couple months. Mm-hmm. And when I came on, like Travis had had his brother built the website, built a website, and it was just kind of there. And emails were just kind of collecting in an inbox. Like Travis wasn't really checking them. Yeah, I think he was checking them, but they'd just been like he he was really busy building a, a different house for somebody else. And there was there was there we had gotten an email from Tiny House Nation, which at the time was the only show, only Tiny House related show of any kind. It was the first one, and they'd only had one season before that, so they were like nothing at that point. You know, they were just like a little podunk thing. <clears throat> but I was like, I knew what I knew what they were because I was interested in Tiny House Nations, and I or I was interested in tiny houses, and so I think. I think Travis just didn't know how to respond. Like they had been like, Oh, you guys doing any builds? We were looking for actively looking for things to film for, you know? And so I had bought it. I had just bought a trailer like two weeks before that. Um, it was actually a reclaimed RV trailer, like, like a, a fifth wheel RV. And I, I had demolished off the actual RV on the, off the top of it and was going to reuse the trailer to build my tiny house. <clears throat> and I was like, I was like, Hey man, like they said this like a month ago, like you're not going to respond. And I was like, and so I sent a response and I just said, Hey, you know, I, I told him about the other client we were building for. And then I told him about, and I said, Oh, I, it was, it was honestly like an afterthought. I was like, actually, I'm, I'm actually building a tiny house and we, uh, were we married yet? Or were we just engaged at that point? I think we were married. Let me think it would have been 2000 and yeah. So my wife and I had just gotten married. <coughs> so I just said, oh, hey, hey, um, my wife and I, we just bought a trailer and I'm actually the owner of the company, but we're, we're going to be building our tiny house, you know, and kind of doing it on the cheap over the next year or so. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if that would interest you at all, but I just kind of let them know. They responded like that day and were like, oh, we're really interested in like the owner of the company also building it. Like they just liked the storyline, I guess. They, so they answered that day and I think the next week they were on the ground filming. Oh, wow. So like I was planning on taking like a year to do this, like in my nights over the weekends and just kind of collecting material as we went. And like, and so all of a sudden I went from that plan to like, oh, like they're going to be showing up Monday, like with a crew, with like a film crew. And I've got to like, you know, like have everything here, have people to build it. Like I've got to basically pull everything together. Like in, I don't remember how many days I had, but it was like a, a week or so. But the, they were only going to be there a week to film the whole build? To film the build? Well, I didn't know how it was going to go. Like, at this point, because I would watched a bunch of episodes and you can't really tell. Like, you know it's not taking as short as they say it's taking. But, like, I didn't really know. So, <clears throat> the way they were talking to me was like, yeah, we're going to come and film the whole thing in, like, a week. And I was like, okay. Like, I kind of trusted it. And they were like, oh, we'll bring some people to help. You know, some some workers and, like... And they were the other reason we jumped on it was because they were we essentially told them what our max budget was, and and basically said like we're not like this is what we have set aside period and we're not going over this and so whatever whatever extra expenses you guys will have to figure out a way to cover that and they essentially that was I mean essentially we're gonna pay for a bunch of stuff and they also get trade outs like you know how this works probably with being on. Uh, being on a reality show a little bit too is, is essentially like any product that's that's if, if you see a logo of anything ever or hear a mention of any product ever mm-hmm. that's paid for and that product was donated probably so so anyways that was that was sort of the for us the reason we did it was because we were gonna 
get the tiny house that we had thought about getting way faster and potentially save a little bit of money in the process. And free of... labor to help build it. <clears throat> and free labor. And it was going to be good PR for Wind River. and Yeah, lots of advantages. Yeah. So anyways, we decided to do it. And I mean, it was... <laughs> It was really, I mean, I would do it again, but it was really pretty stressful because like, yeah, I was like pulling every favor. Like all my friends from the area were like coming, like, you know, we had like 10 or 15 guys of like just my friends that from the area and like some of them were taking off work. Like obviously I couldn't pay them. Like I didn't have money to pay any of them. And, um, <clears throat> and we built it. I think we spent, I think it was eight days. We built the whole, pretty much the whole thing. It was like 99% complete in about eight days of construction and filming and it what that translated to was like um what that translated to was i think the shorter days were like 10 to 12 hour days most days were like 15 to 16 to 17 hour days of actual on-site working kind of thing and so it's like you know we'd get there at six in the morning and leave at like midnight or you know whatever and um but we finished it. I mean, we finished the we finished the house in eight days. And and after the fact, they didn't tell us this before. After the fact, they said by like a week, this had been the fastest build that they had ever done. Because like they come in telling you a week, but they really mean like two to three to four weeks, you know. But like, I guess you just I, believed them because you didn't know. I just believed them, and like we were Travis and I were both in construction, so I think that was the first episode they had had where the client was actually in construction. So I, I understood about making decisions fast. And I understood about like, like I just need to pull everyone in that I, and I had a lot of friends that were in construction because I was in construction. So I was in a situation where we could build it probably faster than a normal situation. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. So anyways, and that was essentially the quote unquote inaugural, like Travis, we had been kind of building his build on the side yeah, and the other friend we had, started her house but now you're kind of official. but that was like the inaugural and we had essentially the whole episode you know referring to ourselves as a real business and all yeah. this and like you did you have t-shirts made like yeah you we had, that was our first t-shirt round we yeah. had just for that I and mean, then we were just throwing on everyone so we could we, we, yeah exactly we, looks, like anyone like like camera guys looks like, like you have a big crew exactly right and so the, honestly that carried us for years that episode that single episode because that was it was played initially, and then like Tiny House Nation got really popular. Well, I saw that episode um, <clears throat> before I met you. Yeah, it it became, I mean, the single piece of marketing. Yeah. That we essentially we had for for years after that, and to this day, I think it's still played. I mean, it's still. I mean, every once in a while, I'll get an email or a Facebook, someone will reach out and be like, "I just saw your episode." Da 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 da. da you know. What were the more gimmicky parts of um, of that? I, I remember one scene where you had to take everything out of your like your parents' house wherever you were living and like tape off a little square in the driveway or something. It's like this is all you can yeah. take. Jo John what? Weisbarth. Yeah. You the listening? host you listening, John? Is is he the host? Yeah. Yeah. He I'm so the cool thing is is I'm so friend really good friends with the two hosts. Yeah. And and like some, some of the other people we met on the show, like the the, the film crew and the production crew and stuff. We're, we still keep in touch with on Facebook and stuff. Cool. Um, but yeah, no, that was, they have to, I mean, you know, they have to have, they have their storyline and they have to make it interesting and engaging. And that's, that's the game. And I, I, I got that going into it. So I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. Um, <clears throat> but so the, I'll, I'll preface this by saying John and Zach, um, are the nicest guys ever. Um, John Weisbarth, he's one of those guys that like, cause I'd watched a handful of episodes and like, he just is one of those guys that doesn't seem like 
you're like that guy can't be like that's not his real personality like he's totally just putting that on like no one's that nice and jolly and like you know like i can't wait to see what he really is really like like zach comes across like he's he's very obviously not the like main host like he's the he's the carpenter like he's the guy that does the building side of things and like he's actually turned into more of a co you know like he's shares the hosting floor with john a little bit more now um because he's learned the ropes on it but but um but anyway so but meeting him like that's exactly how john weisbarth is in real life like he's the nicest guy ever he's super jolly like cameras turn off and he's talking in the same voice in the same way joking with everybody so super genuine guys really really nice guys it was it was really fun to work with them um but yeah the (laughs) the pulling everything out of the we honestly didn't have a lot like so they they had to make for for, i think in most in most scenarios it's not hard for them to make it seem like this is a stretch like these people wanting to move this tiny house is going to be a stretch but because my wife and I had just recently gotten married, both of us had been just kind of like bouncing from rental to rental before that. And we're both on the more like our simple side of like, like she like to, to my wife's huge credit, like she's a fairly minimalist person. Like she, she doesn't like to have a bunch of extra stuff around. She's like always getting rid of stuff and we hadn't accumulated anything. Like we hadn't been married long enough to accumulate anything. And both, both of us had just, was this after we got back? <clears throat> No, this was right before we went to Africa, I think. Let me think. No, this was just after we got back from Africa. So we had both lived, we got married, started a master's program together in global development, and then went to Africa for six months and stayed in like a homestay, like in a rural village, you know, with, with like a, two or three families. Where, where in Africa? Tanzania. This, Tanzania. The village is called Indabash. It's just outside of the Ngorogoro Crater. Nagora, um, Nagora. Yeah. It's it's so nice they named it twice. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you, moto, moto. Um, did you climb Kilimanjaro? Yeah. Oh, no, not Kilimanjaro. Sorry. We did not climb Kilimanjaro. We went to Moshi a bunch of times because it's, cool, it's like a cool little town. But we, I think at that point we were like way too poor to... to and Moshi's like the base town out of... Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a town right at the base of Kilimanjaro. It's kind of got... A, it's got it's got cool... It's a mix of like cool safari kind of old school Africa safari vibes with kind of a base town, like a, like a, um, a, a climbing hiking or town, a, a mix of both of those yeah, things. People flying from all over the world. Right. There's a, there's a big international community. There's a bunch of cool restaurants, like Nepalese type vibe, you know, like it's, it's, it's a cool place. So we went there a handful of times, but, um, but anyways, we hadn't accumulated stuff. So like, but they had to make it seem like it was going to be this huge, like all the stuff we both together owned fit in like half of a s- single car garage. Like w- when we were staying, we were living with her sister in a townhome and we were living in one bedroom upstairs. So it's like everything we owned was like half of a single car garage bay and like one bedroom. But they had to make it seem like, oh, this is going to be so extreme. Like, cause yeah. that's, that's the storyline of the show. It's like, you have to do the whole downsizing bit. So yeah, they pulled everything out and um, we had to like, get rid of you know a handful of i'm doing air quotes get rid of like handful of stuff and you know whatever so i mean it was kind of fun i mean it was kind of fun to like ham it up a bit you know and like i just kind of took it as like this is what it is like mm-hmm. I, you know like this is what the show format is so it's like i'm not and it's gonna, a good trade you got i'm the, not gonna be a jerk about it and it's a good trade i mean you got the the house built in a week versus right. a year exactly. by yourself exactly yep no that's 100 percent. did they pay you they did. Uh, let me think. Or just like materials, or to finish it. 
They didn't pay us for that. No. Okay. It was just, I mean, but like, we essentially got. But there's a lot of value. What, a, what equated? I mean, not even counting the marketing piece, which is which was a lot of exposure. Not even counting the marketing piece, we probably got twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars worth of labor and material. That's fantastic for for free. So, we we counted it as a huge win. You know, even though it was stressful. Was that their first uh, build on the show <laughs> that um, is is a fifth wheel f- chassis frame? Hmm. I don't know. It was one of their first, certainly. Is is there an advantage to the fifth wheel that you don't you don't have to climb up in a loft? You can be in a yeah stand up. Well, maybe you can't, but a stand up um, bedroom. Yeah, so that's the big advantage, um, mm-hmm. and that's what they played up. Obviously, my height and bonking my head while yeah. I'm like walking through the framed tiny house and stuff. But um, that's the huge advantage is is you don't have to climb. It's it's a great use of well, there's a bunch of advantages. Is your essentially conceptually in a tiny house, you're taking your quote unquote bedroom space normally in a in a regular bumper pull trailer, and you're putting it above some area of the house, which by necessity because you're dealing with the 13 and a half foot height restriction, which is just towing restriction. Um, if you go higher than that, you have to get special permits. You can only go certain places with the tiny house because yeah. of bridges. Yeah. Highway <clears> overpasses. So because you're dealing with that height restriction, you are going to have a really low space under your loft or above, you know, essentially you're splitting the difference. So you're either going to be, ha- have a pretty cramped loft or a pretty cramped underneath the loft. And if you're say shorter than six foot, that's not a problem necessarily you can have a fairly sizable loft and just lower your loft to like say six, two or something. I'm six, six though. And obviously I don't want to be stooping around walking in my house. So, so to get around that, you essentially thinking of you're hanging your loft space over the hitch, over the tongue. Um, so, so that's the, the, the advantages would be that you, you can have a higher bedroom space. So I could actually stand up in the, in the bedroom, in our bedroom on the, on the high side of the, of the bedroom. Um, and then the other huge advantage is in actually towing the tiny house, uh, because with a, with a fifth wheel, you're hanging, <clears throat> your center of weight is, is over the axle more than it is on a bumper pull. A bumper pull, if you think of like, if you're looking at a truck sideways and you, and you, and you're looking through the axles, you know, of the, of the truck, you can you can picture a fifth wheel is like there's a bunch of weight sitting right over that axle right and that is necessity i mean essentially you're taking some of the length of the house and you're displacing it above the truck so it makes it way more maneuverable the other awesome thing about a fifth wheel and the towing thing is you can turn almost like 90 degrees or more because you're not dealing with the angle the turn angle and the side of your house bumping into your truck bed as much as you are with a regular bumper pull trailer. So way more maneuverable, way more stable, way easier to tow, also better head height. Um, the downsides would be like, it looks a little more RV-ish, you know? It doesn't look as kind of quaint. Yeah, um, is, is that why you don't see many of them? You, you hardly yeah. ever, you hardly ever see a fifth wheel style so. tiny house. They're a little more expensive too, is the other reason. So the trailer itself is more expensive, but for me, I got around that by demolishing and reusing an RV trailer. So I think I spent like eight hundred dollars on my trailer, something like that. Okay, which is like not very much. I wish, in hindsight, that I would have bought a new trailer though. <laughs> and why is that? Because my tiny house. Uh, 
to make it really roadworthy, I would have to put new, um, I have to completely put new, well, number one, I had to, my friend had to do a bunch of welding to, to essentially adding structural steel for us to just feel comfortable building on it. But then, um, because RVs are way lighter inherently, <clears throat> the running gear is, is, is not as heavy duty as it should be for the tiny house. So it was enough to get it from where we built it to where I have it sitting now. But if I were able to sell it off the property, which my wife have, and I have talked about recently, I would need to essentially put all new uh, axles and, and running gear on it to, to, to be able to do that, to that, feel comfortable someone towing it down the road. Is that why you don't see very long tiny houses? You, you, they, it seems like they max out around 28 feet or so. Is that because of the weight? Weight, yep. So, yeah, the materials you're using, basically home, you know, custom home building materials so yeah you get into you run into weight way faster than you run into size Mm -hmm. um, problems with a you essentially over if your house weighs over about uh, like 18 well depends on how heavy your truck is but 17 to 19 thousand pounds when you get over that you start you you have to basically tow it with a semi-truck because you get you have to have someone that has a cdl to tow it basically um, because there's a 26,000 pound weight rest- overall weight restriction, yeah. gross vehicle weight restriction, um, truck plus plus what you're towing combined. And what, if you get over that, then you got to get your class one CDL or you have to hire someone that's got a class one CDL. So you're getting to semi-truck territory. Then. Plus, and then you have all the weight of the stuff in the house. Exactly. Cast iron skillets. Yep. Yeah. Which bowl, I, yeah. Bowling balls, whatever Cast your hobbies are. Skillets. I use them less now because I don't eat eggs, but yeah um yeah exactly so yeah all those reasons um that's why you don't see them as much um and the the cas factor is what i is what we call it um cute as shit yeah so the like the little gable you know with the two dormers that's just the cutest tiny house curb appeal yeah it's just the cute little cottage you know it's like when you get the big behemoth with like the, you start to limit your audience more. Um, with the flat shed roof. With a shed roof. It just is a little more mod, modern looking. Some people don't like that. It looks maybe a little more mobile homey. Some people think, you know. How, how come How come you're not seeing any traditional RV makers in this genre of houses? You're starting to. You're starting to. Yeah. So um, this was even back when I was, um, when River, like, uh, Clayton has, yeah. I don't I haven't read what they're doing with it now, but they had fired up a, a tiny house, uh, line, uh, and they're being manufactured, uh, in Knoxville, like up, up in Knoxville. I know Clayton has a, um, park model RV you can yeah. buy uh-huh. for 40 grand out the door. Well, I don't know out the door, but it's 40 grand is what the sticker is on the side <laughs> of the house. Um, yeah. So, I feel like we've gone down a lot of technical rabbit holes. I feel bad going down another one, but <clears throat> you want to talk about what a park model RV is? I don't think we need to go way down that rabbit okay. hole. Cause that information you can find, I mean, you can find that information online. I feel like, but, yeah. but yeah, so a lot of, a lot of, um, people are going that route sort of cause there is no, okay. I don't want to say there is no, there are certification routes like tiny house specific certification routes and there's several organizations that have started with promising, you know, uh, there is pro- there is a promising future for tiny houses getting their own classification and their own certification process. That's not the current reality. The current reality, and it is essentially you're classified if you want it certified as a buyer or as a builder. If you want it certified, you're either going the park model RV route or 
the R the RV RV route, you know, both of which are an ANSI standard, 1192 and 1195. So anyways, we don't need to go too far down that rabbit hole. But like, so if you're a tiny house manufacturer, by necessity, you, you're technically legally either an RV manufacturer or a park model RV manufacturer. You know, if you're doing going the certified route, there are guys that, that like we weren't doing certified quote unquote tiny homes for a long time. Now Wind River is doing certified and most of them are certified, I, I want to say, as park models. Um, and so there are companies you can go through to get certified as a tiny home builder um, and and classify what you're building as either an RV or as a park model, but it's a workaround at best because they're very different. The DNA and the fabric of a tiny house is fundamentally almost the same in all the ways that matter to a quality high-end custom home build. So much more durable materials are used. It's So it's actually a marriage between a high-end custom home with a lot of the extra precautions taken for like wind load, seismic load. So if you think about it from the from the perspective of a builder, it's one of the highest um, resiliency or quality structures you could get like on the market because they're using like full two by four or even sometimes two by six framing or even steel framing, um, engine pre-engineered, pre-manufactured steel framing. So it's like incredibly, and then they're filling that with closed cell spray foam in a, you know, the whole envelope. So it's like incredibly rigid structure. And then they're also taking extra, like putting hurricane ties on every single rafter all the way around the whole thing. Like the way that, um, when river builds them, there's different, different solutions for different manufacturers. They, they literally put mending plates on every single joint of every single framing member in the whole house. And a mending plate, if, if you've seen a truss, you know, they have those, it's essentially like a sheet of metal that's got the bar, you know, the, the nail sticking out of it. And th- that essentially puts a metal joint at every single, metal reinforced joint at every single. Um, so essentially what Wind River's, Rim River is doing is building a custom built, box truss with mending plates on every joint. Then they're putting sheeting on that whole thing. Then they're filling all the bays with close cell framing foam. So it's like, I mean, you could drop that thing on its head and it probably wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? It would probably, the structure would probably maintain, you know, but it it needs to be that strong and stiff for, um, traveling down the road and whatnot. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're over-engineered though. If you compare that to an RV, the way an RV is put together, two inch walls, two inch thick walls, no mending plates, wood framing, little staples, little staples holding (laughs) it. I mean, it's like crazy. Like how, how much higher quality a well-built tiny house is. So and which also explains the price because you can buy an right. RV people don't, for a and that's third the, thing the people price. People don't understand. Like, unless you built something before, you don't understand how much higher quality a tiny house is built. Uh, a well-built, I should say. I should put that caveat very clearly in. A well-built tiny house. Because there's there are... people out there building absolute shit tiny homes. Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I can just speak to Wind River because I obviously was very involved in that. Um, but a well-built tiny house is built, like, bomb-proof. I mean, they're really, really well-built. Yeah. Yeah. Take a breath. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, I know that you went to Africa. You want to talk about some of your travels that you've done? Yeah. What you said you you got done with a year long. I'm actually tra- curious about some of your travels, but oh, I don't can, know. I don't know that we need to. We can save that for a later date. Uh, yeah. But well, let's talk about your travels. Okay. We can bounce back and forth if we need to. Okay. Yeah. So you did a year, right? You did a year long. Yeah, year long. It was just that a year, like like two days short of a year, I think, something like that. Where do you start? And what made you want to take off for a year? 
And how do you take off for a year? How do you get your taxes done ahead of time? Are you doing your taxes? I don't think I was doing taxes at that point, there you man. Go. I don't, I was, uh, I was, I was like the year we're just out of college and I had just been working like cash jobs before that. I, I, I think I just, whatever. I just, I didn't have, it was I, easy. It was easy. Yeah. I didn't have much, uh, I didn't have <laughs> much complication in my life to worry about. Where did, so what was the plan? Where'd you fly to or take off from? So, uh, Bjorn Harbold is the buddy that I did most of the travel with. Um, and he seen, we both went to the same college, um, and senior year, he was talking about this. We had both, um, we had both done like humanitarian work at the same place. Like you, at the, uh, I went to Southern Adventist university and you can take a year off and go work, you know, uh, work somewhere, um, for a year. And so we had both done the, that in Africa and so anyways, I knew him from that. Did you get college credits for that? Yeah. Okay. We did. Yeah. So, so, um, so anyways, I knew him from that. And while he, while he was there, it was Zambia that we were both were in while he was there. He was, he had spent a lot of time looking at maps because that's what you do when you don't have internet connection or limited number of books. So it's like, you know, he had just been looking at maps and basically had realized, I think he'd got his hands on a map that had, it had the Pacific ocean in the middle instead of how it normally is where the Atlantic sort of in the middle. And we, if you have a map like that, I don't know if you can, you, you can probably Google that, but it, it, the, the land masses of the world sort of looks like a giant horseshoe. Like you got the Americas down the right side, you got like sort of Russia and Europe and, you know, sort of Alaska almost touching Russia and then Europe and, and then down Africa and on the left side. Um, and uh, so he had just, I, I, the idea had started to germinate while he was there in Africa. Like what if I like, what if I were to go the, like, what's the farthest route I could go physically go on like the land masses on earth. And it was essentially like roughly speaking, if you started at the bottom of one of, of, of one of the capes, you know, say Cape of Africa, or, and you went to the bottom of the other Cape of South America and you basically went over land the whole way. So that was sort of the original idea, you know, that he came up with for the trip. And so he had, he was planning on doing this and like I, I'd been, you know, I'd been hearing him talk about it and talking to him about it. And he had a buddy that he was going with and his buddy um, j decided not to do it for one reason or another. And so he was thinking about just, he, well, he was, he was, I, I don't know, actually, he was, I don't know if he was still planning on doing it or if he was looking for somebody else, but I just started thinking about it. Like as he was talking about it, I didn't say anything to him around Christmas um, of that year. I was like, I think I, I was like, Hey man, like, I'm like, this sounds really cool. I think I'd like to do this with you. And he was like super excited. And you know, I was like 70% sure. And then like next week I was like 80% like, Oh, you, you know, you should 90%. And then finally, like maybe like February or something, I committed a hundred percent like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I like started flipping. I was already flipping cars like in college and doing like little side things to make money. So I just started like going crazy. Like I just like put all my studies on luckily i had front loaded myself i had designed my own like class schedule um through college so i had front loaded everything so i had a really easy last semester at college and um so so yeah i was like working like three jobs like doing i was like doing construction tutoring korean uh second you know foreign language students you, do you speak korean uh, no, no, no. They, they, they were learning English. So that oh. was, that was the point. Yeah. Okay. BSL yeah. Kind but of I was, but I was tutoring them in like school, like math and algebra and things and, <clears throat> and, uh, flipping cars, uh, buying and selling whatever I could find to make money. So anyways, I was just trying to make as much money as I could. So, 
I did that and then we left that June. So like made as much money as I could and then we left and that we left that I actually sold my sold my graduation present vehicle, which which um I feel a little bad about to this day. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> he gave you a car. Yeah, he gave me a car and I sold it to fund the, the trip trip around the world, which I realize not everyone can do and is uh you know, puts me in in sort of uh privileged air. But like in hindsight, I think my dad is supportive of that decision because like he sees how much it meant it's meant to me throughout my subsequent life. And I'm just gonna say a lot of value comes from traveling, especially a trip like that, and it'll change your perspective on everything for the rest oh, yeah. of your life. So right. I, I think it's definitely worth the. the you don't cost. get all that cliche stuff like what you just said. Like that's all the cliche lines that everyone says about travel, yeah. but you don't understand that like in your bones. Until you do, until you do like all extended. Oh, I'm, I'm like, like I mean yeah. it. Like, right. I would be, th- yeah, I've traveled a lot myself and, yeah. um, <clears throat> and I just want everyone to be able to travel as much as they can. It, yeah. it just, op- it gets you out of your bubble. Your yeah. Box. Right. It, it lets you see that it's okay to think differently and do things differently because yes, there's that millions of people out there thinking yep. very differently and yep. doing fine. Yes. Yeah. That exact realization, I couldn't have put it better. Like I had over and over and over and over. Like I remember, I, I mean, I can tell you 15 stories about this, but like the one, one of them that I remember was like, we were in the Salar at the edge of the Salar de Uyuni, which is one of the biggest salt flats. If maybe it's the biggest, I don't know if it's bigger than Bonneville. Anyways, one of the biggest salt flats in the world. And it's based, it's like in the border, it's close to the borders of Bolivia, Peru and uh, Chile like up in the north of Chile and Bolivia and like south of Peru. <clears throat> Anyways, and there was this, there was this little just like shanty town right on the edge. It's basically there to service tourists that go on and go to the Salar. So anyways, we were there staying in some guest hostel. Uh, it also services the salt industry. Like there's salt mining that goes on there um, pretty heavily. So, so anyways, um, this sort of rough and tumble Western feeling town, but like in Bolivia, Peru, borderland, hinterland, really cool place. And I remember there was this couple that just like, they were from somewhere in Europe and sort of like wild haired, like sun tan, sun. And you're just like, oh, these people are living. Like, you know, so you, these are the people you want. You're like, I need to find a context to strike a conversation up with them. So anyways, I think we ended up, I just wanted to talk to them about their motorcycles or something. Walked out, walked over and just started, you know, shooting the shit with them. And um, by the way, can I curse? You can. Oh, okay. Sorry, I should ask it beforehand. Doesn't matter. Okay. <clears throat> um, I don't curse a lot, but my thing on cursing is that like there's certain times where it's like that's the right word to use. Yeah. And it's like then you should curse like when that's the right word to use. Yeah, you know? I, I agree. I think it's overused so often. It is. Yes. But, right. But it, I think all words have a place. I mean. Right. I Well, I come from, I come from a, a very conservative religious background. Like that was my upbringing. Sure. And I, but I had this sort of weird balanced view because my mom, uh, I'm gonna out my mom, but my mom my mom has a tendency to curse every now and then. Um, but my dad is like quite anti cursing, so it was this funny interplay between them of just like like so I, I got both perspectives I think. But anyways, I come I very much come from the like feeling like oh like oh I can't oh I gotta be careful like oh oh you know yeah. So anyways, that's that's an aside. But, Side note. Um. So, so I struck up a conversation with this couple. They were look looked like they were maybe in their late thirties or early forties, and like just curious about them. And like it turns out they they've been traveling for like four years straight. They were making money somehow. Like they both had online businesses. Like they were, 
I want to say they were selling products of some kind online, just managing everything from their laptop. And this was like back in 2010 where it was like that was done, but it wasn't like done. Like it wasn't like everyone was like, now it seems like after the four hour work, it came out and everyone's like, Oh, work from anywhere. Yeah. But there, and there wasn't much internet back then. (laughs) Right. It was was, harder. I was traveling back then and, and, and it was maybe it's so funny to say back then, in 2010, way <laughs> back, 10 years ago, way I was back traveling. in 2010. Yeah. But 10 years ago, <laughs> uh, you go to a place that you're talking about, uh, yeah. Central America, South America. And I'm remembering, uh, maybe 25% of the lodging or hotels had yep. internet. That was about it. One out of four. It was so. very streaky. Like you would get to places like Southeast Asia and like everywhere had like way faster internet than, than the U S mm-hmm. you know, like podunk backwoods villages in Vietnam had like the equivalent of like twice the bandwidth like of like my connection, my DSL connection at home. It's just just because their infrastructure was like brand spanking new and like so good. Well cell phones tech took <laughs> over quickly in Africa because they didn't have regular physical landlines, you know? Yeah. They so they skipped that whole um infrastructure uh putting resources and maintenance into right. telephone lines and whatnot. Right. And they went from nothing to now they have better cell phone service right. in places in America. Yep. That was pretty interesting. Yep. It's mind blowing. But anyway, so I ran into, ran into people like that all over the place that were like, you just, you hear in your wildest dreams, there's like some book you read about this, like once in a million person that's doing this thing. But then you meet 20 of those people in the span of six months. And you're like, Oh, Oh, like, oh, this is doable. They're just regular people. Yeah, these are just like, this person's like, you know, like no more or less smart than than me, has no more or less knowledge of how to do things than I do. But they're figuring out how to do this essentially dream scenario in in a way that's actually financially savvy. You know, it's like not like this, like throw my life away and like go, you know, uh be this ascetic, you know, that's like cut ties from everything. It's like, no, it's like they're participating in the world. They're being financially smart. They're not going into massive debt. They're actually making money, saving money by living so cheaply in these third world places. So yeah, uh, I completely agree. I think we, how we got on this tangent was you saying basically that like, it's, you know, the, the cliche of like, it's life changing and you run, run into all these people that are, that are, that, well, I was defending your, I was defending your decision to sell your graduation. Right present because it's traveling you can't put i mean you can put a price right i can buy another truck right but there's something you just gotta if you can because not everyone can but if you can you um you should feel almost obligated the funny thing is so it was a 2005 nissan frontier really nice truck it was it was a beautiful truck and i have still had to this day i haven't owned a vehicle newer than a 2005 Than that vehicle. So that was the newest vehicle I ever owned, and I haven't s- since then owned a vehicle newer than that. You had your one chance. You gave it up. Yeah, right? Yeah. I think I, I'll take that trade again. So you were you were explaining how the goal was to travel around the world um, in this horseshoe loop. Did you do it? Yeah. So we ended up having to fly twice. Um, we started at the bottom of South America. We flew down to... Okay, so wait. How do you want to do this? Do you want to... Do you want to like kind of jump in, dip in places, or do you want me to kind of take you through the general path? Yeah, go through the general path. You start in Tierra del Fuego. <clears throat> yeah, so we flew down into Punta, Punta Arenas. You'll have to pardon me for my pronunciations of uh, foreign cities and things. I'm going to try my best. Um, Punta Arenas is like the f- farthest large city in Chile. And we found like a, like, I want to say it was like 500 bucks to fly from Toronto. I live in Detroit. 
that's where my parents live. So my, my buddy met me in Detroit. We took a bus, a Greyhound from Detroit to Toronto, found a really cheap flight from Toronto to Toronto, sort of like the New York of very international, very international, a lot of cheap, good, cheap flights. Like you would find from New York, you could find from Toronto, um, at places. So anyways, we found, found a one-way ticket. That was a liberating experience, man. By, that was the first one-way ticket I've ever bought. And when we rocked up to the airport, uh, you got off the Greyhound kind of, you know, we were early. So we kind of wandered around with our backpacks on Toronto. It was the first, like, I'm a backpacker, like feeling, you know, cause like you got your backpack on mm-hmm. and you're like your hiking boots that like, I look out of place in an urban setting. And, um, how, how big was your backpack? It was small. So we intentionally, I'd done a bunch of reading and again, like going back to like, I, I had done enough travel to that point. Like it was, it wasn't like my first, first rodeo. This is my first extended travel, but like I'd lived in Africa for a year and I realized the one realization I had in Africa, which most people get when they go backpacking the first time that put me ahead of the game when I went backpacking for the first time was that everything you need, you can buy there. You don't need to take it. Like the people where you're going, I guarantee you they take showers and they use soap. I guarantee you they brush their teeth. I guarantee you they wear clothes and they have, sh- okay, shoes is the one thing for me. Cause like almost nowhere else in the world can I find 15s readily available. The US and maybe Australia, maybe Canada, maybe some countries in Europe. That's the only place they're minting people of my size. Yeah. With size 15 feet. Well, I can't say better than that. I, <clears throat> I, I go by that yeah. motif as well. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're packing, uh, you're packing with friends and, and, Wow. Will I need this? What, do I need this? No. And then don't take it. And the if answer you, is just no. And then if you do, all that. <laughs> if you do, just like you said, um, people in other places of the world also brush their hair. So maybe right. you can buy a brush. Exactly. Or, like they're building humans the same everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So you're in Tierra del Fuego. Then what's yeah. then? Um, it was it was a, a 50 liter backpack. 50 it was, liter. Yeah. And the, to this day, it's the backpack I recommend. I still carry the exact same one when I travel. It's a, it's a, a Kelty is the brand yeah. red wing and they've been making it forever. They made it different sizes. Now I want to say they make like a 44 liter, which would be like, like perfect for that type of travel. I would not recommend anyone to take bigger than a 50 liter backpack. Mm-hmm. Like in the route, like 35 to 50 liter is like the sweet spot in my opinion for almost everybody for extended long-term travel of the backpacking indie variety. So anyways, that was and the thing is, I, I, I took off with what I thought was fairly a pared down amount of stuff, but the backpack was fairly full. Um, and I ended up jettisoning, in the first three months, jettisoning like half of the stuff that I even took. So I had a 50-liter backpack that was like maybe half full. And it, it, and it, it would be, I'm glad I had the 50-liter. And it had the like compression strap so you could cinch it down. So it wasn't like this big floppy thing. It was, you know, you could keep it tight if you needed to. But... I'm glad I took the 55 liter because sometimes you would like, we would go like we went when we ended up going north into Siberia in January, like I had to buy a bunch of stuff like, like warm clothes that I had to fit into my backpack. And, and it, I was able to expand to that size for the period of a month or two that I needed to, and then go back down. So, so I was actually glad I had a full 50 liter pack. Um, and that's kind of how we treated it. Ended up treating the trip was like, Oh, we're going to warm place. Let's jettison all of our, cold weather stuff. Oh, we're going to a colder place. Like you're this, the, the seasonal shopping is the same too, like internationally. Like when it starts to become winter, 
people start selling winter clothes. Like it's, it's mind blowing, right? Like, so it's like, you can, like people are like, Oh, what if you can't find? It's like the people are going to be cold there too. Like, you know, like people have, it's like, it's my, yeah, I'm, I, I'm saying it in the way I'm saying it because I thought the same way. It's like, it's, it seems so obvious, but people don't think that way. They're well, like, but they're what just, if I don't listen nervous? You know, if you yeah. have a trap, you don't know. You're just nervous. Yeah, it is. It's, it's that way. a little fear. Yeah. So, so anyways, yeah, Sierra del Fuego, we flew into Punta Arenas, took a bus down to Ushuaia, which is like the furthest South city that you can get to. It's in Argentina. Um, and Tierra del Fuego, which, yeah. And then we took a bus from there, um, basically bust all the way up through South America. Um, I, so the countries in order would be, you want the, nah, that's okay. fine. But I am curious when you were down in Tierra del Fuego, you're so close to Antarctica. Did the thought it cross was tempting, your, did but it, it was going to be expensive. So you didn't do it. Cause that was of the, the reason. Yeah. At that point we didn't know, like I had saved up, I think I had roughly like 15,000 put away. I just didn't know how much stuff was going to cost. Well, that would have been a big chunk of that. <clears throat> right. Because I think you can take boats down there. Is that, that's the way you do it? You take a... You can take a plane, but then the flight is expensive. Mm-hmm. And then like being there is expensive. Like you have to generally go with some sort of a tour agency. There's only like one or two places to stay that are super... So it's like, right. we just didn't want to start by, you know... Blowing, all, blowing that makes a huge sense. chunk of money. So anyways, it was tempting though. Because that would have knocked off another continent too. And that would have been, I think I've... That's the so Australia and and Antarctica are the two continents I've yet to visit. So you so you bust all the way north. Bust all the way north through South America. Buses most of the way. How'd you get past the Darien Gap? Yeah, so so we got to Cartagena mm-hmm. in Colombia. Yep, northern. So Columbia. one little thing I have to I, I want to say there was a ton of awesome things. Um, just a couple highlights I would recommend people checking out in South America. Um, Lake Titicaca specifically the Isla del Sol, which is off, off Copacabana. You take a ferry from Copacabana to get there. Copacabana, I want to say is Peru. Is it Peru or is it Bolivia? I don't know. But anyways, um, I would recommend it. Um, there's a pizza place right at the top of Isla del Sol. That remains my favorite dining experience of all time. Okay. I want to say it's called Las Velas, which is like, means like the vegetables. Why, why was it Las so Velas? good? Because so, Isla del Sol is this volcanic cone in the middle of Lake Titicaca, almost 360 degrees surrounded by like snow-capped Andes sort of vistas. But you're in a lake. You're in this like Lake Tahoe, like just gorgeous. I mean, it's like up in this rarefied mountain air and you're in the middle of nowhere. And like Isla del Sol doesn't have any infrastructure. It's just walking trails. Um, so a lot of tourists go there, but then there's like local people that live there, you know, like the farm there and stuff. And I'm vegetarian. And so like, I, I've just been eating like up to this point, like Argentina is like not a friendly place to be a vegetarian. Cause they just eat a ton of meat there, you know, like just the whole like yeah. beef cattle culture and all that. So I was eating like carrots and like sweet potatoes <laughs> and like bread and like stuff like that. Um, and, and like I was a newbie to the road, so I didn't, I wasn't quite good at like you know, foraging as a vegetarian for myself yet. So anyways, I was like, so anyways, we we were, we were quite hungry by that point. And, and there was this little sign and it was said like pizza this way or or like vegetarian pizza. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, like that's too good to be true. Like we're on this little Island. That's like in the middle of the mountains in the middle of what feels like nowhere. And so you find this little, you know, it's, it was like a treasure hunt. Like you're following and then there's another sign. Oh, this way, up this trail. And you're literally walking through like 
trails like through the forest where there's no houses there's no buildings or businesses around you you're like what like this seems like this seems like a fairy tale witch is gonna like cook me at the end of this uh this hike so anyways you're going higher and higher and higher you eventually like walk out onto this like panoramic like there's a drop off like on all sides of you just view and just like like the like the clouds open and the angels start to sing like kind of a feeling and then there's this little shack there with like las fellas pizza da da and like some of the best oven fire roasted pizza i had had i've still i mean i've ever had i mean there's some good pizza here you know like community pie is great uh douglas heights bakery makes great pizza but like this was on par like with that but you're also like sitting on the um, the cone of a volcano in the middle of Lake Titicaca. I mean, it was just like... It's a whole experience. Oh, the whole experience. It's just, I mean, you have to go, if you end up anywhere near there, just just go and find that restaurant and you won't be disappointed. Okay. I, I have a similar pizza yeah. s- story in Chaminade, France. Okay. Uh, snowboarding with my friend Nick. Oh, yeah? Uh, and we were just stumbling around looking for a place to eat and it was not in the busy part of town and we stumbled in and it was oven... Um, Oven baked pizza. Is uh-huh. that what they call it? oven yeah, baked? Yeah, oven roasted. Yeah, or... yeah. It, it was it was fantastic. My favorite pizza to this day. I, yeah. I get, I totally get those. Um, and I, you know, it probably wasn't even that good, but it's just that experience. Yeah, that, like, right, exactly. Trumps it. Yes. I, right. I get what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I w- actually have a couple times since then gone and looked it up. It's You can find it on Google. Like it's, <laughs> it's got reviews on it. Like, and it's only like a 4.4, which is like a letdown. Like I feel like it's, it's like 4.8 or above for it sure. In my mind. Five. It should be 4.8 to 4.5, to you know, for sure. That's hilarious. Um, so, okay. So how'd you get past the Darien Gap? Yeah. Cause that's so, a interest. I don't know if everybody knows that's a physical land barrier barrier. There's no roads, uh, yeah. that go from the FARC is no longer super active there. They weren't at that time. The okay. FARC is the Colombian, uh, narco guerrilla group, guerrilla group. Yeah. Narco terrorist sort of guerrilla group that uh, made that really dangerous for a long time. It's still dangerous for a lot of reasons, but anyways, the, we ended up going to Cartagena. There's a fairly common, sailboat route people that that live aboard sailboats that own their own sailboats and travel around in the caribbean and, and the world on sailboats they ferry people because it's there's a land border there they ferry backpackers to make a little money seasonally so like during the big backpacking season they'll come they'll ferry people from cartagena to panama do three four trips you know and take as many people as they can fit on their sailboat and make enough money to live for a year or two years, you know. How much did your trip cost? How, the the little oh, ferry. Oh shoot, maybe four hundred per person. Yeah, and it's a couple of days, right? Two, like three days. Three days. I think it was two nights sleeping, three days. Um, and it, that was awesome. That was an awesome experience. Like on the sailboat with a person that knows, like the water's like a local. Like he knows how to navigate. He was actually a, he was a retired Austrian chef. Like he, that's what, that's what it has been his career. He lived in Austria and been a, and he was a little catamaran called Felix the cat. His name was Felix and (laughs) he was on a catamaran. It's a little, you know, punny, punny joke there. They're Um, all punny. All boats are are a little punny for some reason. Yeah. And so, so anyways, made our way through the, um, there, there was a, there's a, there's a indigenous people that live in the islands off the coast of Panama that aren't, they're not sovereign to Panama. They're like sovereign unto themselves super nice though and so anyways we, we we sailed among those islands there was that's where we watched the world cup on this like literally picture like just picture the quintessential desert island with like the two palm trees and like nothing else 
that's where we watched. And there was like, there was that with a single like shack. That was a bar that essentially was just set up for, and there was TV somehow, satellite, I guess. And, um, it was just set up for, for people that live on their sailboats to come and like stop and like have a beer and like watch a little TV. And so it was this awesome surreal experience where it's like, you're on this little Island and there's like 50 sailboats just completely bristling around the whole thing, just moored up around this whole little Island. And I mean, essentially standing room only on this little desert Island and everyone huddled around this little TV and this little shack drinking warm beer and like I mean and like predominantly I think it was France and the Netherlands that were playing and it was just like two it was like two sides like there was clearly France and there was clearly the Netherlands all these people had just found this place and just come together in this like fleeting moment of an experience that was another cool experience that stands out to me um, that's stuff that you can't plan you no. can't you can't say yeah, we didn't plan that but felix wanted to go watch the world cup and he's like yeah. oh we're gonna stop here and yeah yeah but i mean that's what i'm getting that's that's <laughs> like when you do an extended trip and you have yeah. time and that those are the experiences that you're gonna have that you you can't plan you yeah. can plan like to go see the louvre or right. go to eiffel tower but yes. you're you're that's not the stuff you remember though. no your best memories are gonna be that yeah yeah that's super cool so, so anyways, yeah, we, we sailed and it was great. And we, I think that's the first time I ate fish actually. Um, it was, uh, that he had been caught like the night before the day before or whatever. Anyways, so that was really cool. Uh, then we just, we kind of blitzed through South America or Central America. Sorry. Um, my buddy and I actually split up cause he wanted to go meet with some friends sooner and I wanted to go a little slower. So he took off from, he basically bust straight from Nicaragua up to, central California. I, um, I took my time and I had been really getting antsy, uh, seeing all these motorcyclists on the Pan American highway. So I found a motorcycle. It was a 1973 Kawasaki KZ 550, um, shaft driven, like standard Japanese bike, um, vintage Jap- Japanese bike. Now they're super like sought after back then they were super cheap. Um, cause people like to customize them, make them into bobbers and choppers and stuff. But anyways, um, bought that from a local dude for like 800 bucks or so figured out how to get the paperwork I needed to get through Mexico legally and essentially rode a motorcycle from Guatemala, which borders Mexico, um, up to uh, Los Angeles to meet my parents who were going to fly out and visit me. And I had like a good three weeks when I bought the motorcycle, but like I had to get it fixed. So it was in the shop for a couple of days while I was in the shop. I mean, I just wanted to make sure it was roadworthy. So while I was in the shop, um, at this in Lake Panahachel, um, Lake Panahachel is not the lake. I think that's Panahachel. I think is the town. I want to say Lago de Atitlan was the lake. Yes. Yeah. Lake Atitlan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Also a really great place. If you ever are in that area. It's by Antigua. Yes, I believe. it is. Um, so I, I'd been staying there with a friend who worked for, uh, work for, um, Shoot. What's the government? Uh, oh, the uh, Peace Corps. Peace Corps, yeah. Yeah, I was staying with a friend there, and we had gone to check out there. So anyways, the, um, the long story short, it rained for like a week, and then there was a mudslide over the only road getting going out of Penachel. So I ended up there another week for them to clear the road. By the time it was there was a footpath, which is all I needed to get through on my motorcycle, um, I only had like a week to get from Guatemala to LA, which you're like, Oh, there's just, it's just Mexico. But like, if you, if you map that out, like 
uh, dear listener, it's like 4,500 miles, <laughs> which is like twice across the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so <laughs> my thought process was like, I've already paid this money to buy the motorcycle. If I end up not making it and having to just ditch and get on a bus, I'll just like, whatever, I'm going to lose my investment anyway. So I might as well just try rather than just like give up right now. I mean, like I did the calculations and it didn't seem like very doable, but I was like, yeah, I'll try. And I hadn't done a bunch of motorcycle touring, so I didn't know how miserable riding the bike, riding a motorcycle for 17 hours straight is. Every day. Every day. For a week. For a week. (laughs) But it's miserable, man. Like I really had some dark nights of the soul on that trip. Like I really tested the limits of like. So you're riding at night then. My mental and physical endurance. You were doing some night riding. I would try not to. I did a couple days out of necessity because I, I. there wasn't anywhere to stop. Like I had to get to the next town to actually find anywhere where I could actually sleep. Um, and this was actually during, this was 2010, late 2010, which is, if you remember the time where there was all in the news, there was all those, uh, drug cartel killings that were happening in North Mexico. This was like the first wave of that. And so I had all my parents were like absolutely freaked out. All my friends were like emailing me like, what are you doing, man? Don't do it. But I was like, I'll just stick to the, I'll just stick to the toll roads you know, I'll just drive during the day. I'll stay in hotels. Like, it's not going to be a big deal. And it wasn't. It was completely fine. You know, I, like, everyone was super nice. But but I really didn't get to see the country. Like, it was... I, I'm not going to say I regret it. Because, like, it tested my limits in a way that not, that you, you can't test unless you're forced to do something really uncomfortable like that. So, from that perspective, it was worthwhile. Like, I know now that if I ever have to... I can ride like 17 hours a day for seven days straight, you know, and, and I, and granted, like, I won't like my, my sit bones will be numb for three weeks after that. But like, and like my lower back won't ever be the same, but, (laughs) but I could do it, you know, like if I, if I have to, I can do it. Um, and so anyways, it gives you that, um, it may, it's not, you don't feel invincible, but it's like, you just feel like, oh, like I can do more than I thought I could, you know, feeling. Um, which I've drawn on since then. So anyways, yeah, uh, got to LA and then m- met up with my buddy again. We bought, uh, I left my motorcycle there with a friend. Let's, I, I have a question on yeah. the, how did you take your motorcycle? how do you get into America with that motorcycle? Uh, not, le- well, it never really, I never legally imported it. Yeah. That's what I'm, yeah, that's hard. Right. So it had a Guad- it had Guatemala registration, yeah. you know, and so I had, I had legal papers for it, Guatemalan papers for it. And you owned it. Like you had, Gua- you had a, the I title, had, right. The, you know, the Guatemalan version of a title, which is basically like this little card, sure. you know, that transfers with the bike. <clears throat> but yeah, so I just, I mean, they didn't even ask me about it. I was just right. I mean, at the border, they didn't ask me about the motorcycle at all. Like I was just riding my motorcycle in and they, obviously they did the whole passport thing at the border but they didn't ask me like, what are your plans for this motorcycle ever? Wow. That's so really I just, surprising. So me. I just rode, I just rode it in. I just rode the motorcycle. With Guatemala in. plates and tags. Or if they did, I just said that like, I'm going to get it registered when I get to LA, hmm. which you can do. That's a, another rabbit hole. We don't need to go down, but like, that's another, you know, uh, interest of mine is probably cause it's old enough is why you can do it. I think that was probably five years because, so our um, <clears throat> vehicle um, arbitrage, buying a vehicle, a titleless vehicle, or something that's got problems with the title, and getting a really good deal on it because of that. But then knowing how to get the title is a really good way to get really cheap vehicles that you can then flip if you know how to do that process. That seems daunting to other people. Yeah. Um, 
so so anyways that, that was my plan was just to was just to oh, okay like I'll, I'll do some sort of a lost title process you know once i get it into the country i didn't really have like a i hadn't done that research i just was like oh i forgot a way to get it in and then i'll figure it so out so then what happened with the bike i ended up selling it without a title to a buddy of mine at a loss but like i was gonna i, I wish um, i wish i hadn't sold it to be honest i wish i would have kept it and redid, redid it later yeah for memories yeah for memories but Probably for the best, because then it's like I would feel like I never could get rid of it. You know, I don't like having stuff like that that you just feel like you never can get rid of. So where'd you go from LA? We bought a Toyota Camry, an '87 Camry station wagon. Excellent vehicle, <laughs> such a good vehicle. To this day, one of my favorite vehicles ever. Just like dead reliable. So now you can sleep in it. Yeah, and that was you, the that was the goal. And now yeah. you're going through America. Fuel efficient vehicle we could sleep in was the goal. And now hotels are expensive again because you're in right. America. So that was our plan. So. We had friends all the way up the coast, you know, from various points of in our lives. And so our plan was just like, hey, let's meet, meet up with a few friends, generally just kind of go up the Pacific Coast Highway and then maybe go up to Alaska. Like we didn't really know if we were going to go drive this to Alaska. We we're like, we're not sure how reliable it is. It was, in hindsight, incredible condition. It was the 87, it only had 130,000 miles, and it, but it had the 22 RE engine, which if you're listening to this and you're and you're you're not familiar then just you know go on go on autopilot for a second but 22RE is like one of the most reliable engines Toyota ever made and that's speaking in Toyota terms so it's like one of the most ga- reliable gas engines ever made i didn't know this at the time but they're just like dead simple just keep trucking forever and ever and ever and ever they've been making them for you know the, yeah the super reliable engines and like it had the like sweet like um what's the What's the pattern of fabric? It's like not houndstooth, but like um, the old school fabric seats. That's got the like almost suit looking fabric that like I don't know what you're talking about. Um, herringbone. Herringbone. Okay. Yeah, herringbone cloth fabric, just pristine condition, no rips. I mean, the thing was like immaculate, maroon, like awesome burgundy color. Anyways, so yeah, we ended up driving that up the coast and got new tires for it. it was the only thing we had to do to it. Did an oil change and got new tires for it. And um, we spent some time in Seattle, um, which which that was one of my favorite cities. And still to this day is one of my favorite cities. It's in the top three cities I've been to. I just really loved it. Um, and then we ended up driving from, you know, we figured, hey, you know, this vehicle seems really reliable. So we ended up driving up the western route to alaska so it's not the alcan it t-bones the alcan up near whitehorse or just past whitehorse um but this is like a newer road that's just been completed in the last uh, parts of it weren't completed when we drove it it was still dirt parts of it were still dirt when we but it's since been completed and it's gorgeous i mean you're literally driving through virgin british columbia just wilderness and there there was a couple stretches where there was no place to fill up like we had to get a gas can because there was no places to fill up for like 250 miles or 300 miles not even no places to fill up like nothing just like wilderness for 250 miles um but that was awesome we we saw we stopped and we would camp just you know throw our mattresses like literally just like on the road like we would just like pull off to the shoulder and just like put our mattresses on the off shoulder side of the car so now you're just sleeping on the side of the road yeah would you do you would do that a lot because there's no traffic there's no place to stay. There's no, I mean, there's no buildings of any kind, like for hundreds of miles at a stretch on that road. How do you get gas? What's the longest gas? 200 and some mile, like 200 and, 
don't remember the exact number. Somewhere around 250 miles was the longest, at that point, the longest stretch. This is an uninteresting side note, but I'll say it anyway. The only stock vehicle I believe ever made that can't make that stretch is the Hummer. <laughs> really? It gets, it gets such bad fuel that sounds, economy. That, that it, sounds right. Yeah. It's like America. It's almost like the perfect vehicle. America! <laughs> it's like the perfect vehicle for the trip in theory. You'd like, oh, Hummer. That's yeah. probably, but no, can't go far enough. So, so yeah, um, that was awesome. Like every night the you could see the um, Aurora Borealis. The Northern Lights. Super cool. I've never for seen like, it. For like a week in a row. Like every night, you're just like laying there and just like above you is the Aurora Borealis. Um, because there's no light pollution there at all. I mean, like you're just so far from anything that's that's giving that's putting out light. Um, <clears throat> and in hindsight, probably there was probably lots of grizzlies and stuff around, but I mean, we didn't think about that too much. You're still here. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, we get made it up to Alaska. Tried to figure out... Our goal was... We spent like three weeks in Anchorage trying to find, trying to book passage across the Pacific on a boat because we didn't want to fly. We wanted to stay on the surface of the earth. Yeah. And actually had like a really, uh, what seemed like it was going to work out, like a lead that seemed like it was going to work out. There was a fishing, a fleet of Japanese fishing vessels that was like somehow had a American arm. So they would fish in, off Amer- in American waters, like around Alaska during the, you would know m- much more about this, but during the fishing season, the summer, yeah. and they would go back in winter in, ja- in Japan and fish over there during the winter. And so they were just at the tail end of that and they were, their fleet was fixing to leave. And so we had, we had verbally secured, one of the managers had verbally secured like working passage aboard one of those boats. But then I guess one of his higher ups, like a couple days before you're supposed to leave, one of his higher ups was like, uh, something insurance problem, blah, blah, blah. Were you going to work on the boat? We were like, going to work on the keep? boat. Yeah. Wow. We weren't going to get paid, but it was essentially like work, yeah. work for a passage. That's kind of super thing. cool. Yeah. So super bum, a super big bummer for like to work for three weeks and then for that to fall through. So we ended up, we ended up, uh, actually sold the vehicle, the, that Toyota Camry. Yeah. Um, we sold it it's because stuff is so, they have to ship everything to Alaska. Stuff's so much more expensive there, especially big goods like a vehicle you know, it's expensive to ship a vehicle to alaska and there's a ton of rust up there so everything there is just rust bucket and keep people keep running things running forever so it's just like the engine will be in pristine shape but like the vehicle is like falling apart around it that's really commonly seen in alaska um but this was a southern california wagon and even though it was an 87 it was in i mean essentially like shrink wrapped awesome shape i mean it was like not not even any dents on it and we had bought it for 800 bucks in la and and i mean it had just put tires on it. that's all we had done as far as cost wise and i i want to say i listed it for 1500 bucks or 1600 i think because i wanted to double my money i was like hey if we double our money we'll pay for some of our trip up you know the gas money and food and stuff <clears throat> um driving up here and two guys showed up at the same so within like an hour I'd had like five phone calls. Two guys showed showed up at the same time, and like there was a bidding war, and ended up selling for like twenty six hundred bucks. Wow! Because the guys and I wasn't even like trying to like talk them up or anything. Like one guy was like, "I'll give you two. I'll give you twenty two. I'll give you twenty four. I'll give you twenty six. You know, for like so it worked out. It paid for it more than paid for the whole road trip from L.A. to Alaska. Um, but but now you vehicle. But now you're stuck in Anchorage. Well, yeah. So we had um, one of Bjorn's. Oh, relatives, his uncle or something, had done had taken the inland passage. There's a ferry system that goes from Anchorage down back down to the mainland United States, to Seattle, Bellingham, Washington, and Seattle. 
And, um, he had taken it and like had this awesome experience and wanted to pay for Bjorn to do that. And his friend, me, you know, by extension. And so that was an awesome, that was an awesome blessing that, that we got that paid for. So we took the inland ferry. We just slept, you know, like there's like a deck where you can just sleep on the, you know, like on the deck, you know, like you can just like pitch a tent on the deck so you don't have to actually pay for a room. So we just like, you know, like slept on a match, you know, on air mattresses on the deck and took, I think it took maybe five days to get down stopped in Sitka. Um, I think that was the only long stop. There was a couple other short stops, but Sitka was the long stop and we were able to walk around and see Sitka. Um, and came back and got off in Bellingham. And then how did we get, Oh, we, we met, we met someone, there was a teacher that we ended up playing a bunch of board games with on the, on that, um, on that, on the, and she took us, she drove us from Bellingham to Seattle which we had been staying with a buddy. Anyways, uh, we, we ended up buying tickets. We found like pretty cheap tickets, maybe less than $500 from Seattle direct to Beijing. Oh, wait, to sh- Tokyo. Uh, via, we had a couple day layover in, um, um, what's the capital? Uh, in Seoul, South Korea, which we hadn't even thought about going to, but it was, I would really love to go back to Korea because was, that was one of, that was one of the coolest nights. We, we stayed in a Jinjobong. I, I might be saying that wrong. Jinjobong, Jinjobong, something like that. It's essentially like a sauna spa uh, that has an all night sleeping room in it. And it's like five bucks. It's like you pay like five bucks. And this one that we were at, there's also, there's all, there, it's like a thing in Korea. They're all over the place. There's actually some down in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Like my wife and I are, are planning on going and, and trying and try one out. Um, and yeah, you, you essentially pay your flat fee of whatever five bucks and you have 24 hour access to it it gives you and, and you and the one we were in there was like six different temperatures and types of wet sauna and and like then there was like five or six different jacuzzi type things and there was like a, a some dry saunas and then you could pay extra for like getting a massage and like amazing like why like why is that not a thing everywhere is what i want to know like yeah you stay for five bucks and then, and then you, i mean granted the sleeping arrangement was like literally like uh, shelves like there was just like they were like people shelves basically yeah. there was this room with just like hardwood shelves basically like three high and everyone just kind of sleeps in a row and you, they give you like a little pill a pillow i think is but they keep it warm like it's not like sauna warm but they keep it like fairly warm in the sleeping room so you don't even need you don't feel like you need a blanket or anything so anyways that was that was super cool we hit up a jinjo bong and then and then went to tokyo figured out really quick that tokyo was like heinously expensive um and I've since talked to a bunch of people that have traveled in Japan and they've told me that like rural Japan is way cheaper. So that's another place I'd love to go back to is, is Japan, but hit up some of the more rural, smaller cities in the more rural areas of Japan. Cause I just really, uh, Japanese, Japanese culture is fascinating to me. And I just like a lot of Japanese things like their products and you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, they make a lot of cool stuff. So I imagine they'd be, and one of my favorite documentaries since then is, um, Jiro dreams of sushi. Have you seen that? It's really good. No, I have not seen that. So good. I've, I've watched it now. It's for a while. It was like my go-to like background noise. Like if I was doing something, I would just literally put that on and just like be right. It's just like, yeah. Anyways. Um, so we, we took a bus from Tokyo to Osaka and then took a ferry from there to Shanghai. <clears throat> and like, it was like a two, three day ferry, um, that you just slept in. Like a, it was like a common room that yeah. you could book passage on and you just sleep. 
Um, made some friends with some guys from, it was Sweden or the Netherlands. Bjorn, I remember one, the one guy's name was Bjorn, like the guy I was traveling with, but his last name was Boberg, Bjorn Boberg. And the reason I remember them, they stick out of my mind, is because I had I had a bunch of videos I'd, I had um, downloaded onto my computer. And one of them was um, that I had was The Big Lebowski, which I hadn't watched. And so I like put it on and started watching it. And one of, I think it was Bjorn Bo- Boberg, had seen, saw that I was watching. He's like, oh, that's my favorite movie. It's like all of a sudden there's a bunch of like Swedish guys like like around me. Like we're all just like la- like absolutely dying laughing at The Big Lebowski. Like this was the first time I had seen it. It's just like one of those experiences like you're on a ferry, you're on a Japanese ferry from Osaka to Shanghai surrounded by a bunch of like Swedish dudes um, watching the Big Lebowski. Like that's just like your story in yeah. the, uh, by Panama on right. the island with the, yeah. the World Cup. Yeah. And like I still I still keep in touch with him on social media, like on crazy, uh, like every once in a while, like he'll like my stuff or I'll like his stuff um, and like. Obviously, we've led completely separate lives, and it was like you had that one moment, two days shared, you know. Yeah. But like bonded over Big Lebowski. I mean, and anyways, so I ended up in Shanghai. Met my uncle and aunt who lived there at the time, and my my aunt showed me around Hangzhou, which is just uh, it's like a city right next to Shanghai, almost like a big suburb of Shanghai. It's it's just about an hour from Shanghai. Shanghai is awesome. I'd like to spend more time in Shanghai too. The Bund area, which is this historic sort of district of Shanghai, old Shanghai is really cool, like right on the river there. Um, I think the Bund is, I don't know if the Bund is the area or it's the river. Is that the Yangtze River? It's on the Yangtze, the Yangtze, Yangtze. Okay. Yeah, I told you pronunciations, I'm going to slaughter. But anyways, um, that area is really cool. Um, And it really cosmopolitan and very like, in a very like, um, I felt European almost, the architecture and like ton of like bookstores and coffee shops and like just cool stuff in the downtown um and then we took trains basically i mean china ended up being my what this the question that gets asked to everyone when they do extended travel when they come back what was your favorite country it's a good question though what was your favorite country it's a great question what's your favorite country yeah but like what is, I mean, that's you have. There's a lot of qualifications that need to be that go into that answer. Like there's there's lots of favorite things that happen in lots of different places. The one that my default that I just started adopting as my default was China, because a it's super different than America. Like the culture itself just feels very foreign. At least it did to me in a way that a lot of other places didn't. Like Central America, South America, I was very. A lot of it is very Americanized, and if I had been to Central and South America a bunch. So it just, so this was the first place I went to uh, Japan, but I didn't spend much time there. This is the first place I went to that. I spent a substantial t- amount of time in that felt very foreign. Yeah. More exotic. Right. And there was that feeling of otherness there in a where for me, that's very, I'm a very curious person by nature. And so I really enjoy that. Like just feeling like, Oh, and the language is different. Exactly. Other than Spanish. Yeah. And people is- were really nice. I mean, for the large part, people were super nice to me there super cheap food, really cheap, really good and cheap transportation. Their train system is amazing. And like, you can get a sleeper car for like, I mean, you can go like halfway across the country for like 40 bucks on a sleeper car or something like that. It's crazy. I mean like, so really navigable, at least the West or the Eastern side of China. And, um, so anyways, we, we made a loop of China. Essentially we went down, um, ended up spending, going through like the Lee river gorge, Guilin area, which is, if you, you know, a lot of travelers hit that area up, it's kind of a backpacker destination. It's gorgeous. We did some rock climbing there, went down to, I think we it was Nanying or Nan, Nan, Nanqing, Nanying city 
the large, it's a large city just before you get to, um, to Vietnam where we spent a few days cause we had to get a visa into Vietnam. Um, so I spent a few days there walking around that city, um, which was an interesting experience cause it was like very much not a tourist city. Like there was no tourists there at all. Um, and so it was just like a industrial, like a fairly large, I want to say the population was like 6 million or something, but it's considered a smallish Chinese that's city. Just, that's how China is. Yeah. They're all big. Insane. Like it blew my mind. And it's just like, as far as you can see, just, just a hundred story apartment buildings, just full of people. Like it just, that was the first place where I just like blew my mind. Like the, 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 the scale of Chinese cities, Shanghai did to a certain extent, but that was, I remember that city was like, okay, so this is considered like a city on par with say the way the Americans would consider Chattanooga, but there's 6 million people here. And like, it's, yeah. And that's the document. I mean, like who knows how many actual people were there, you know, including undocumented people and stuff. But anyway, so we spent some time there and then, and then we ended up getting our visa um, almost didn't get into, uh, Vietnam. We all, was almost detained at that border because I had shaved my head the day before. And in my passport photo, I have hair and I have like, I have like no facial hair and I have like a good amount of head hair. And I, I had shaved my head so that I had almost no head hair and I had been growing a beard. So it was like, I guess I didn't look, I thought I looked like my passport enough still, but like literally they took me into this room and questioned me for a couple hours because they thought I was like trying to clandestinely get across. Was this China or Vietnam that was Vietnam, questioning? Um, no, it was China. So it was leaving Chi- China, leaving which China. didn't make sense to me. Like I was like, I'm, I'm leaving your country. Like, why is this an issue? Like, anyways. So, um, so anyways, I got, obviously got out of China. Were you scared? I mean, was no, because that- that, by that time we had crossed so many borders. Like we had crossed, I don't know. 20 borders by that time. So it's like, I was kind of used to, we had been detained for various reasons at different borders. And my, my attitude that I kind of adopted was just the, like, I know that I'm not doing anything illegal and like, I have a legal visa. So it's like, whatever, like eventually it's going to get sorted out. I'm not going to freak out. Cause if I freak out, then I'll, then I'll look more suspicious. And so I'm more likely to get in a worse scenario. So it's like, I just sort of adopted that motto and it's worked out for me pretty much since then. Um, I'd also spent a bunch of time in Africa before that. And there's, there's a, there's notoriously convoluted border crossings in Africa. And we, and I'd done a lot of that. So I was used to sort of getting detained and questioned at borders in a way that doesn't feel that dangerous. You know, it's not like they were waving guns in my face or screaming at me or beating me or anything, you know, but, um, but anyway, so made it into Vietnam. Vietnam is amazing. I loved Vietnam. I'm planning on, um, in the next year or two, go back to, probably maybe Thailand or Vietnam or both with my family, um, spending some time incredibly cheap, amazing internet. Um, there's an Island off the coast of Hanoi called Cat Ba Island. That I recommend any, anyone that goes to Vietnam to hit up. Um, it's just, it's like those Karsk limestone coming out of the water. Like if you've seen that in national geographics and there's like, there's people that literally live in villages built on floating pontoons, in like in this network of limestone Karsk mountains, like in this like Bay area, Halong Bay off the coast of Vietnam, super cool culturally um, as well. And um, Hanoi is very different than the South, as you would expect, you know, from Vietnam, uh, from the war, you know, like the, the North is very much more still to this day, communist, a lot more shares in common with communist leaning, I should say. 
um, shares more in common with China culturally than the South does. The South is, is like a lot more sort of freewheeling, a lot more American in their sentimentality, as you would expect, because that's how it was divided up, you know, during the war, during the Vietnam War. A lot of that's, a lot of the feel and the vibe and the undercurrent of the culture there still kind of follows that, that divide that was set up even then. But I mean, to you know, saying that, met a lot of awesome people that were like, I, I mean, I, I didn't really meet anyone that was like super anti-American or mad about the war or there was some, there was one awkward, there was a tour we did in, in South, um, in the South that ended up being a little awkward just cause there was, they were showing these propaganda films, these anti-American, anti-Australian, anti-Canadian prop, like hardcore, like we should kill all these people showing like, videos of people falling on spikes and like stuff like this then this is all from the war time so this is not like a recent propaganda film but like they're showing this like ah like look at this interesting thing and we're like but these are our veterans like you know so it's just that awkward i just kind of thought of it as like a hey this is a cultural experience but there was actually a guy there that was an australian who had had who was an older guy that had friends that had died in the vietnam war that like flipped out and like was escorted off the premises like oh, wow. during the showing of that, this video that we, that they showed us at the, it was at the, the Coochie tunnels just outside of, um, Ho Chi Minh city. So we used to, we, we used to be called Saigon anyway. So we, we, uh, we bought scooters actually in Hanoi and rode them, rode them the length of Vietnam, like little hundred CC Honda scooters. We rode them like a thousand miles in like, again, it was about a week, I think, or maybe 10 days. Um, was it easier than the, the Kawasaki? It was easier except for there was one day, it was monsoon season. And so we were coming into this city, um, Hoi An, which is kind of well known. Um, there's a bunch of, a lot of people go there, like tourists will go there to get custom clothes made there because a lot, it's a huge textile industry there. And it was literally raining like sideways for like 10 hours on this, like the ride coming into that. And so, and, and the city was flooding, like the whole downtown was under about a foot or two of water. Um, so like the first floors, everything was just like moved up to the second floors and stuff. So we were riding into that city cause like that's where, I mean, we were just on scooters and then we needed to find a place to stay. And we're like literally riding our scooters through like foot deep water, like for like a few hours, like coming into the city. And I have a video. Oh, I want to find that video. I wonder if Bjorn still has it. I think he took a video of it. But he he told me the story. He was behind me and I was in front of him. We're riding along the side. So Vietnam scooter culture is wild. Like it's it's like being in like the most packed crowd you can think of ever being in. But everyone's riding scooters on a road and going like 20 miles an hour. But it's that crowded. Like you're just, it's this, but you get used to it weirdly. Like you get used to the flow because you just intuitively sort of, start to figure out how everyone sort of manages it. But, but anyway, so you're, you're riding through this really densely packed road with tons of scooters and trucks and stuff. And like we were riding, you know, water just spraying up both sides and this truck, this big, like, you know, lorry type delivery truck just like speeds past us. And Bjorn, I think had seen it and it got out of the way, but just this wall of water. I remember specifically, like it almost knocked me over this wall of water, just like, just completely cascade over me and like <laughs> and i remember right after that there was this like minivan type car with like a family in it like like 
driving past us and just like there's like three kids with their face glued to the window just like looking at us like these two stupid americans out in this monsoon weather riding our scooters just like like it was just this moment of connection where it's like i completely understand what they're thinking and i agree with it like why the hell are they doing this like what is what is like possessing them to be out there right now like so anyways we ended up drying out and finishing the the trip that was really fun though um, then we hit up, uh, we, we went to Cambodia, saw like Siem Reap, Am- Angkor Wat, went to Thailand, um, spent some time in Bangkok with a cousin who was living there at the time and went up to Chiang Mai, um, and also spent some time with, a a displaced tribe that's right on the border, the Karin people. They're like, they're kind of like, don't belong to Thailand or to Myanmar. They're kind of like live on the borderland right there. Um, and so anyways, we spent a few weeks uh, helping out a nonprofit that worked with them uh, for a little bit and then went up, went up to Chiang Mai, then took a bus back through Laos into China. Um, and then basically bust all, or no, took trains all the way from, from, um, the Southern end of China all the way up to Beijing and then ended up going into Mongolia through China. And there's obviously a ton of stuff that happened in China, but, um, so I basically kind of hit the, a few of the big cities. Knew I knew we knew some people that lived in Kunming, China. Um, saw like the terracotta soldiers. Went to the Great Wall, of course. You know the cliche thing. And then and then d- did the trans uh, the Trans Manchurian line of the of the Trans Siberian Rail. So mm-hmm. there's three lines. The Trans Siberian goes all the way to Vladivostok from Moscow. That's like a nine day trip. There's the Trans-Manchurian line. So we did the Trans-Mongolian, sorry. The Trans-Manchurian line goes around through Russia into China. To, I think it ends in Harbin, which is like a really northern, almost Siberian Chinese city. And then the last one goes, uh, it, takes, it goes south right past Lake Baikal, right by Lake Baikal in Russia, and goes through Mongolia to Beijing, like directly to Beijing. And so we took that lot, we took that line from Beijing all the way to Moscow. And I think it took us like five and a half ish, six days, basically straight. We stopped for, we got a separate ticket going from Beijing to um, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. I'm, I think I'm saying that wrong, but the capital of Mongolia. And we spent like two or three days there, which was wild because it was the middle of the winter. It was like December, like the end of December. Um, so super cool. Like we went through, there's a famous market there called the Zoc and it's known for pickpockets. It's like one of the highest levels of pickpocket in like, like travelers were warning of like starting in Southeast Asia, when people heard we were going North without even us saying we're going to Mongolia, people told us about the Zoc, how amazing it was. And also warned us about how bad the pickpockets are there. And the way they do pickpocketing in Mongolia is not like the sly, like, you don't understand, you don't realize that you were pickpocketed until later. Like Mongolian are Mongolians are large people. Like they're, they're like uh, most of them. A lot of the dudes are like over six foot and like, look like they're line linebackers. I mean, they're big dudes. So they'll essentially like three big dudes will just surround you and kind of pin you not violently, but just kind of hold you. And then a third guy or a fourth guy will just rummage through your pockets and, <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it. That's being held up. <laughs> and That's like, not, well, and it's not like, and it's not like, they're not like mean about it. They're just, uh, it's just like a thing, you know, it's just like, yeah, we're just going to take your stuff. <laughs> Did that happen to you? It didn't happen to us. It almost happened to, um, it almost happened. So I don't know, this could be me reading into the situation, but I, by that point we had been traveling for like 
five, six months. So I was getting pretty, you get this awareness, this like street savvy awareness yeah, just from walking around cities all like, day long. Yeah. You get like tuned up. You're you get like tuned in. Right. Frequency. So we were born, Bjorn and I both, and we're, we're not small guys. Like I'm six, six and I'm like two thirty. you know, pounds. So like, I'm not like, I'm like tall, but I'm also not skinny. Like I'm a big dude. And Bjorn is like pretty big. He's like six, three. He's a little skinnier than I am, but he's like not a small guy either. And I think that's the only reason we didn't get strong armed. But like there was one time where I was walking um, intentionally, I was walking at a distance far enough behind Bjorn that it didn't look like we were together, keeping an eye on him kind of like, and then like we would, we would be kind of doing that for each other. Like we were kind of keeping an eye from a distance on the people that were around us in the market. And I remember seeing a guy like sitting, you know, sitting like, you know, as Bjorn passed is sitting in this little stall and like, very obviously peeling out and like starting to follow him. And I even, I, he even like made some like initial lunges at Bjorn's bag and like, but I essentially yelled at Bjorn, you know, and, and the guy like ran off, which is confirmed that he was probably a pickpocket to me anyways, but I ended up being fine. No one didn't have any problems besides that. We actually didn't, I don't think I got anything stolen the whole year. I lost a, I lost a steel clean canteen water bottle when I was in Vietnam, but I'm pretty sure I had just clipped on my scooter. I'm pretty sure it fell off at one point when I was riding, like when I hit a bump. Um, I think that's the only thing I ever lost. And I don't even think that was stolen. I think it just fell off my scooter. Yeah. Um, Did, was it hard to get the visa into Russia? We just, so the two visas we had to, we had to think about ahead of time and we couldn't get at borders was Russia and China. Yeah. We did the, both of those during our road trip up through the States. We did them in, um, I want to say we did both in LA. I think we did both of them in LA, maybe one of them in San Francisco. I think we did both in LA. We Did you go into the Russian embassy? Did the Russian embassy in LA and the Chinese embassy in LA and we we booked them ahead of time and you basically just I think it took us roughly a month to get approved for both. Um kind of a thing and you just basically have to say when you're leaving, when you're exiting, are you going to go in and out multiple times? Um and it's different prices based on all that stuff and and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't hard at all. It was like, we went, we went and wait. It's like going to a DMV. We went and waited in line, filled out the form that took a photo of us or something. And then a month later we got our visas in the mail. We had them shipped to a, our friend in Seattle. And so we picked them up when we yeah. got up yeah. to Seattle. So that, and that was, and that was fine. We had our, we had them arranged. I, it would, I think it'd be very difficult. I don't know if it's impossible, but I think it'd be hard to get it ahead of time or if you didn't get it ahead of time at, yeah. the, at the border. Yeah. Very difficult. Um, oh, as an aside, if you're, if you're planning, so train travel is my favorite way to travel. Um, it's just, it allows you to take in. So you feel like you're, it has some of the aspects of say walking or riding a bike. When you're walking or riding a bike, you're going slow enough that you can think and take in and sort of engage with things because you have that mental space and you're not, you're not consumed with driving a car down the road at 50 to 75 miles an hour, you know, which which, which consumes a lot of your unconscious brain capacity. Um, train, uh, you're moving faster, obviously. You're moving at the speed of a train, but you're not having to do anything. You're just on the train. So it's like you can have slow conversations with people. You can meander around the car. You can go and eat. You can go sleep. Like It's just this weird other world that you're in for a period of time with these people, That, but you're not consumed with the the um chore of actually getting yourself from one place to another someone else is doing that for you you know yeah. so it's this i don't i mean 
a plane isn't even that because you can't meander around a plane, you know? So you don't have the weird security stuff with flying, but you have some of the aspects of like being able to get places really fast. It's cool. It's just, there's nothing, there's nothing like a train trip, a long train trip that where you're sleeping on the train for multiple days. It's just cool. Especially through China, Mongolia and Russia. Yeah. Right. That's pretty, that'd exactly. be a good, that'd be a really yeah, fun like, train trip. Right. It's because they're big countries. So it helps you get across quicker. Exactly. Like, if you're the type of person that just likes to get lost in thought, there's nothing better than train travel. Like it's amazing. Um, like you can just literally be like, I'm just going to spend all day thinking about this one thing. Like, cause I don't have anything else to do. Yeah. You know, like literally there's no internet. I don't have cell phone service. I've got one book You know, I can read that for a while, but only I'm not going to read that for six days in a row. You know, did you have any cell phones at any point during the trip? So I carried a, uh, I carried an unlocked cell phone that was, that had, that was like a global yeah, you could bandwidth cell phone. Buy local Sims and put it yeah, in. Yeah, I spent like 20 bucks on eBay. I, you know, I just bought it. It was like a little flip phone. Um, smartphones would just become like the smartphone. I think Apple's first phone had come out in 2009. So this was just after smartphones. They weren't really a thing yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I just, you just buy, sometimes I would buy a local Sim. I only bought maybe five. I mean, of the 40 some countries we went to, I think I only bought a Sim in maybe five countries. So most of the time I didn't have a cell phone. Just use internet to communicate with people back back home or like, and we wouldn't plan, like we only plan things. Um, we don't need to belabor. I feel like we've talked a lot about a lot of stuff, but like real quick, we, Moscow, St. Petersburg, spend some time in St. Petersburg. That's my other, that's my, that's in this. So I mentioned Seattle as being a favorite city. St. Petersburg, Russia is another favorite city. And then the third is Cape Town, South Africa. Those are like my mm. three the cities I've been to in my life, I haven't been to a lot of Western European cities, which I think I've, I would like London's pretty cool too, but super expensive. But anyways, St. Petersburg spent some, spent some really cool time there. Um, at the Hermitage, the Hermitage museum is amazing. It's like, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's, it's like all of like, if you want to really experience Russian culture, historical Russian culture. Like you got to go to the Hermitage. It's used to be the summer palace of the czars and the Royals. And, but now it's this, like, I don't even know how many square feet it is. It's like several blocks right in basically downtown St. Petersburg, Russia. And St. Petersburg itself is like super cool. It's this, like, feels like this really old world European city with a lot of the cool aspects architecturally and stuff of that but it's the Russian culture, you know, it's like, um, and the history to go with like the fact that it was, I mean, now Moscow is quote unquote the capital, but like St. Petersburg is the heart of Russia. It's the, it's the historic and the cultural capital of, of Russia for sure. So anyways, then we ended up splitting, Bjorn and I ended up splitting up, um, from there. And cause he wanted to, um, he wanted to go through like Georgia, Armenia, Turkey, he wanted to see those countries and not that I didn't want to see them, but I was more interested in the Baltic countries and, and Eastern Europe. I just have always been really fascinated with Eastern Europe and specifically I love world war II history. So there I want, I really wanted to go to Krakow. Like I really, really wanted to go to Krakow. It was like on my bucket list, um, Poland. And so, so we, we basically d- decided to split up and then meet back in Greece essentially. in like, I don't know what it was a month or something. And so we, I went through, I took buses from, St. Petersburg, basically through Estonia, which touches Russia, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, um, Poland. Um, and then, 
and then spent a good amount of time. That was basically just like hopping from city to city, you know, not really spending much time. But for if you're looking for a list of places to visit, Riga, Latvia, and Tallinn or Tallinn, Lithuania, are two uh, really awesome cities. They're both medieval. Like cities were basically built around like uh, the bones of the city are like thousands of years old. Like like the the, the medieval walls are still around the downtown of, of of both of those cities. So it's just like so cool. Like these. Anyways, you don't get that in America. Like, like we're so young as Americans. Like our whole country and every building in the country is like what max, like three hundred years old, three hundred fifty years old. The oldest, oldest buildings, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's just, it was mind blowing to me to like literally be staying in a hostel built in this part of the wall in this downtown. That's like this was built in like twelve hundred, you know. <laughs> yeah, like twelve hundred AD. Like what? Like. <laughs> This is insane. Um, and so they're, they're, they're super cool. I'd like to go back and, 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 and take in some of the history of those, those cities specifically more. Um, but then Krakow, like if you, if you like history, especially if you like World War II history, Krakow has got to be on your list. It's such a cool city. And if, so if you've seen the movie Schindler's List, no Schindler's List you haven't seen I, I, I know I know I know I haven't seen it bro I know it's on I mean it's not like a you know get your jollies type movie but it's one of those yeah. ones you gotta see well yeah so I hadn't seen it either but I okay had, so I, I hadn't <laughs> seen it go. up to that point but there I've seen it now many multiple times so it's set in Krakow and Sh- Oscar Schindler is this factory owner that ends up you know essentially through his business saving uh hundreds I want to say six to eight hundred Jews that were going to be gassed, essentially getting them, getting them employment in his factory, and then eventually getting them, you know, free, you know, shipping them out um, right before the 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 things fell, you know, the Germans entered and then the Russians entered. Um, but Krakow is this interesting place because, like, a lot of Eastern Europe was bombed to smithereens. Like Warsaw in Poland was essentially bombed to smithereens. Like, there's no old buildings in Warsaw, and most of War, there's a few, but most of it was just flattened because of bombing. Um, and Krakow wasn't because it was used as like the headquarters while the Germans were there. And then the Germans, I could be getting the timeline wrong, but as I understand it, the Germans were there as using it as their headquarters when they took it, but it was essentially vacated before they got there. So it wasn't bombed by them and it wasn't bombed by the, the Germans weren't bombed by the Americans there. And the, before the Russians, the Russians occupied it for a little while after, after the Germans, uh, left the area, basically when they were getting pushed back. Um, but they, the Germans left before the Russians got there. So they didn't get bombed by the Russians either. So it's essentially all the built, like none of the buildings were flattened. It's all the same as it was more or less when world war two was happening to the, to the point that if you go, so if you, if if you've ever seen any documentaries, like I want to say uprising is another, it's a movie based on the resistance in Krakow at the time. And that's where Kristallnacht happened. If, if, if you're familiar with history at all, there was a, it was one of the first, uh, purgings of Jewish ghettos that happened and mass ex- killings and exportations to camps um, to Auschwitz, which is both Auschwitz and Birkenau, which was known as Auschwitz II back then, are within 45 minutes of Krakow. And so um, the, the people in Krakow, the Polish people, and it, like they, quote, I mean, most people didn't even understand what was happening historically at the time. But like 
obviously all the Jews were put in the ghettos. Then the ghettos were walled off and essentially they couldn't leave. And then there was this crystal knocked, the purgings happened. Then all those people, most of them went to Auschwitz, either to Birkenau or to Auschwitz or other concentration camps near there. Um, and there's, during, there's bullet holes like throughout the Jewish ghetto. You can walk through. I mean, now it's just part of the city. You can walk through what used to be the Jewish ghetto and there's bullet hole like up high in the buildings where you can't, people can't readily repair things or reach things. You can see bullet holes like in parts of the city that are world, from World War II, like from this essentially Kristallnacht time. And if you watch um, the Schindler's List, there's this um, particular um, trolley line. There's, there's these old trolleys that go through the whole city of Krakow. Uh, you know, basically like, you know, with a little electric, you know, uh, cable, like, like think of like the trolley cars, like in San Francisco, but little European ones. And there's one, I don't remember the number, but in the movie it's featured, like it goes through right through the middle of the Jewish ghetto. And it's literally like these people riding to work and they're like going through the ghetto and like these German or Polish people are like seeing the, like literally riding through the ghetto and seeing it, but, but not being part of it. It's this weird thing. But that same exact trolley, and the same cars are still there. They're still going down those streets. And they're the historic trolley cars used from that time. And at least, did you, did you at least get they appear the to be for me. Yeah, I mean, you, that's how you get around the city. I mean, you just buy a little pass and you go around the trolley car. So you're riding that trolley car around. You're going through literally the same street. And the, the crazy thing about Schindler's List is it was all filmed in Krakow. The original Oscar Schindler factory is exactly like it was in World War II. Then they filmed Schindler's List in that factory... So, so, so the conception you have if you watch the movie is the exact same one that when you're standing there, it's like not changed at all because they didn't use a substitute factory. They filmed it in the factory. Wow. And um, the, 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 there's a bridge over, I don't remember the, the river, it started with a V, but there's a river, that, there's a bridge that's in the movie prominently right near the factory. That bridge is, I mean, that was like, I, was, I stayed in a, in a hostel one block from that bridge, two or three blocks from the Schindler factory and another two or three blocks to the to what used to be the Jewish ghetto. And like so literally I watched that movie one morning. Like I got up in my hostel, I watched it at like nine in the morning, first time I'd ever seen it, which is a really moving experience. And then I'm literally walking around the world I just watched in the movie. And it, but it really happened. Like it's just my mind blowing historical. I mean, really sobering. Like that whole day I took I only took black and white photos because it just felt like that. Like it just felt um, Schindler's List is filmed in black and white too. Um, even though it was filmed in like whatever it was, the eighties and the nineties, it was filmed in black and white. Um, and the, now the Oscar Schindler factory is a museum. It's just, it was turned into a museum basically, um, to memorialize what he did and what happened there as far as the internment camps and all that. Um, so it was just wild. And then like the next day I went to, Aush to Auschwitz, to the Auschwitz. It's all there. All of the buildings are still there. The gate is still there. Arbeit mocked free. You know, work will make you work will make you free. That's original wrought iron thing is still there. Like the gallows that they erected to hang the British off or the um, German officer when the when they I think the Russians uh, occupied it is still there. The gallows is still there. The gas chambers are still there. The nail marks in the gas chambers on the walls are still there. I mean, it's like it is a mind blowing very sobering historical experience, but I, I would recommend anyone to do that, that, you know, it's like, it's like a once you don't want to do it a bunch of times. Cause it's like, it's a bit depressing. Like I was in a weird headspace for like weeks after that, but it was well worth, well worth it. Um, historically to do that. Um, 
and on a lighter note, like the city of Krakow itself is just cool. Like there's just a cool art scene there. There's a cool underground music scene there. Um, I'd met a lot of really interesting people. So anyways, then I took a, was it a train or a bus? I took a bus, I'm pretty sure. No, it was a train. I took a train from Krakow to, uh, through the Ukraine. I basically just went through the Ukraine kind of in the middle of the night. Like I, I stopped in one town, like in the middle of the night in, um, it's in, I think it's called Lvov, Lviv or Lvov. I think it's spelled L-V-I-V or something like that, but it's pronounced Lvov or something, which is kind of the uh, western, large city in western Ukraine. So basically just changed uh, from a train to a bus there, went straight into Romania. Um, and then I had a bunch of, so my parents' church, or it's the church I grew up going to in Michigan, um, there's a bunch of church members that are Romanian. Uh, and there's a, I don't, I don't know why exactly, but there's just a bunch of families that have ended up coming to our church that are coming to the church my parents go to that I used to go to that are Romanian. And so there, there, there was a bunch of connections in Romania through that. I essentially was fair from like the moment I entered the country, I was essentially just handed from family to family to family, like for like a week, just through, which is an awesome experience. Cause it's like, they're just showing you their local town, but it's like, to you, you're like seeing all this stuff that like you can't see any other way. Like they're just taking you to the stuff that they do, you know, and you're, and you're just having these really cool experiences with family members, Romanian families in Romania. So that was a really cool experience. Um, and we ended up spending some time in Brasov, which is a cool city in Romania. Um, just outside of Brasov is where essentially the legend of Dracula was born. Um, Dracula's castle. Yeah. Dracula's castle. Have you been? Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah. anyway, I have a, don't tell, but I have a little piece of, Dracula's of the rock yeah um so yeah the vlad the impaler that's the guy that that lived there and uh, he didn't by all accounts drink anyone's blood but he was a really vicious dude and was sort of enigmatic and there's a lot of you know there was a lot of uh what do you call it um conspiracy theories about him at the time because he was so vicious um probably well deserved and he was called vlad the impaler because he would throw people off cliffs and they would get impaled on rocks below Mm -hmm. yeah i think I could be getting that wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Anyway, so then uh, basically took a bus, buses or a series of buses from there through Bulgaria to um, to Greece. Spent some time in Greece. The Egyptian revolution happened right then because we were we actually there was a ferry that went from from uh, from Athens to to um, Alexandria, Egypt. Yeah, and we were just gonna that was no problem. We were gonna easily get across, but we just decided it was it was in the early days of when they just started the revolution where like they pull all americans they evacuated and yep. all that so we were like eh probably not the best idea but the byproduct was we got like a 20 dollar flight or something from the athens because the flight routed through the stopover was at cairo like cairo airport so we didn't leave the airport but we were in the airport during like the revolution during when the revolution or, yeah. was happening um, but and because the flights were so cheap, routed through there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, anyways, we. Were, I mean, were you disappointed to not see the pyramids? Super, I or... had been to Egypt. Well, had, no, I hadn't been to Egypt yet. Had I been there yet? I ended up on that same trip going back to Egypt. Okay. Um, but but um, but anyway, so so we ended up uh, we ended up going to Addis Ababa. So we flew, had a layover mm-hmm. in Egypt, and went to Addis Ababa. And then Ethiopia, Ethiopia, capital of Ethiopia, which is an awesome city. And I could talk for another 
10 hours about just Africa because both I've lived there for on and off for a couple of years and Bjorn had lived there, you know, as for, you know, 10 months or so during, during, um, when he was there working in Zambia, like I was talking about before, both of us were really comfortable navigating Africa. Most people, I don't, I wouldn't recommend Africa as a starting place for independent travel unless you're like quite adventurous. Um, it's not that it's dangerous cause it's, Af- it's actually quite safe. Most places are quite safe. There's some countries that make the news, you know, that are, that are dangerous, but most of Africa statistically you're far safer than most cities than where we're sitting right now in downtown Chattanooga, like statistically speaking, if you look at like murder rates and stuff. Yeah. But, um, it, there is not a lot of well, or there, I should say there's a lot less well-trodden backpacker trips. And most people don't understand how big Africa is. Like it's huge. Like the, the Mercator projection, which is the map most people use. That's, that's the map we all have all accepted as like accurate. The accurate map of the world is actually skewed um, because it's actually skewed because of what's involved in unfolding a globe. You have to make decisions about what gets bigger and what, and how things get warped essentially when you, when you, un, cause obviously the, the earth is not flat. I mean, some people yeah. think it is these days, but it's not. It's like when you unpeel an orange, right? It all curls up. So to put exactly. those curls, so flat, you're either chopping it up into yeah. slices or to put it together to look like a map you're having to make decisions about what you're, what you're warping, the sizes of things. So by necessity, when they made the Mercator projection, the map we now use, all the central belt countries look smaller in relation to the northern and southern belt countries, um, which that's a, that's a whole separate discussion and the, the ramifications of using that map and, um, and like European nations appearing much bigger in relationship to yep. Africa, to poorer African belt nations and like has that had an effect or not. You know, there's, that's a whole interesting discussion in and you can google um a map yes this, you can google a map of yep. they they it's a map of africa with other countries put in it yep. and i think china's in yep. it u.s america's in it and it's, it, it's like almost the rest of the world is yeah. in it. it's, it's insane yeah like it's something like china the u.s australia I, I'm, I, I'm making this up a little bit but like russia like like the next like five biggest countries like fit inside it's a of lot the of continent stuff. of Africa. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge country, massively massive country. I think just the Sahara Desert is the size of America. Yes, just exactly. the desert. Right, that's yeah. one desert. So it's not super friendly for traveling around if you're not a fairly well healed like into some like sitting for long periods of time and like in kind of uncomfortable scenarios kind of a thing. But anyways, Bjorn and I were used to that, so we ended up hitchhiking essentially from Addis Ababa. <laughs> so it's a hard place to travel. So we just hitchhiked it. Instead. We hitchhiked from Addis Ababa more or less to the Cape, to the very bottom, to the Cape of Good Hope, which is where we ended our trip, which Cape Town is another. So I don't mean to skip over Africa completely, but like, I feel like that's a whole separate podcast. Yeah. Like, it's just like awesome. I mean like, like Africa, my wife and I, my long-term plan and my wife and I's long-term plan as a family is to like get to the place where we're spending say like, two two ish two to three months a year in africa sort of you know since we lived there in 2000 when we did our masters we've we've kind of kept in contact with people in the village we stayed with and we've kind of funded some little projects and stuff like that we would like to go back and kind of expand those projects and and we'd like our kids to have that experience of growing up in that culture and stuff so anyways that's our long-term plan and africa is amazing and and really close to my heart and my wife's heart so but yeah, it was great. A lot of good stories through Africa hitchhiking. Um, the the one the one that I'll tell is um, real quick is 
there's no essentially no road to speak of from the the southern border of Ethiopia all the way to Ni- almost to Nairobi. There is a road, but it's essentially two tracks into the middle of the desert, and there's really no cities or towns. There's just, there's there's like local indigenous village people, but there's no there's really nothing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds is of miles. Is that Lake Turkana? It's near so Lake Turkana, yeah. So that's in the that's in the northern Lake Turkana is in, in the north, but it's in the far west of of Kenya. Okay. But yeah, it's, it's in the relative similar area. So it's desert. I mean, it's like desert, desert, like no trees, like Sahara style desert. And it's quite, it can be at times dangerous because there, it depends on how subdued the military keeps the Somali bandits or yeah, Somali, Somali bandits come over. Like there's Somali pirates people are familiar with. Well, there's bandits that also come into the desert and they raid caravans of, of vehicles driving that route from, from Addis Ababa to Nairobi. And there's a lot of herding that happens up in like Southern Ethiopia. And then people, merchants and stuff sell their stuff to the, to Nairobi, which is like one of the bigger, more developed cities in Africa, certainly in that part of Africa. So there's a lot of goods that make their way to Nairobi through that route. And they're, they're called, they're called shiftas, S H I F T A S shiftas. These, these essentially desert bandits that come and raid, you know? And so because of that, they travel in caravans. They'll, they'll travel at like, and they'll usually drive mostly at night and in, in caravans and drive really fast. If you can picture like a big overland semi-truck, like jacked up these Mercedes, you know, with the big Unimog, like Unimog yep. is a brand of those. Um, that they're, they're usually have like, have like two or three sets of dual wheels in the back and then they're jacked up. And those are the vehicles that usually make that trek. And they'll drive those, essentially rally race those in caravans of say 10 vehicles at say like 60 to 80 miles an hour for 24 hours straight. And that's how we got from, like that's how we got <laughs> You were from, in one of the caravans. We, we booked passage in the cab of one of those from, and it, and it was goats. We were carrying goats in the back of our truck. The, the insane thing, I've got pictures of this. The insane thing is, it was full of goats, which there was times we were getting all the wheels off the ground. Like, like, and like, I was just thinking about those poor goats, like all just flying up in the air in the back there. I think they wedged them in tight enough so they really couldn't move <laughs> or like break their legs or whatever. Like, yeah. um, like all the goats in the center could probably just pick their legs up and they wouldn't even have like, you know, fallen. But there was like 10 guys hanging on to the top, like to the tarps covering the top of the like it was just a tarpaulin over the back, you know, open space. Yeah. And, the, and there was like 10 guys like, like going to, um, going to Nairobi they, that you, you only have to pay just like a few little, um, you know, it's like not even a dollar to make, to make that passage. But you have if to, if you're hang willing up. to hang on to the top of the tarp <laughs> on a truck while it drives 80 miles an hour through Jeez. a desert, like and they did that for 24 hours. Like, it's insane. Man. No, well, like, there's gotta be some fuel stops. They can't run. Yeah. I mean, they would stop every, what, what, what say eight, but those things have big tanks. They I usually know. have dual or triple tanks. Yeah. So they would be like 10 hours at a stretch. We yeah. may be driving, you know, like maybe six to 10 hours at a stretch, depending on where the places were to stop. So it's like, man, those guys were, and that's Tough. what they, I mean, a lot of those guys do that weekly. I mean, like to, bring, to bring goods to market. Oh yeah. The drivers, yeah, they're, they're bringing their goods to market to yeah. sell in Nairobi. And then they're going back up to their Northern, desert tribe or to their Southern Ethiopian tribe, you know, to live. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. That's pretty fun. Yep. Um, so yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what really blasted my brain wide open as far as what's possible. That 
uh, that trip, that the trip. Whole trip. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. The whole thing. Um, just, it just completely just opened my head up and like, obviously you, you get back into the rut after you come back on a trip like that. But like you, my brain's never gone back to how it worked before. Like no. you just have so much, you're just having so much experience. That's not even, you can't even really verbally tell someone easily, you know, like how, how earth shifting it is for you. Um, you get with a wink and a nod when you talk with people like you mm-hmm. who have done stuff like that before, then you like, that's the only time you can actually get close to actually having a, 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 a meaningful conversation about it. Yeah. But like, you can't really like, it's like hard to you encapsulate can't into words what that, what kind of shift that makes in people. Yeah. You have to, it, <clears throat> it's a thing that has to be experienced for sure. Right. Which is why travel writing is a thing still, you know? Yeah. yeah definitely have to experience it. Man, you've lived a life. You're not even uh, 40 yet. You got, no. You got a I'm, lo- I'm only 34. I'm yeah. 34? Yeah, I'll be 35 this next March. Man, that's a lot of life experience. Um, well, it's been fascinating learning more about you. I didn't know about your year-long trip, so this was really enjoyable for me. Um, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Sharing your life. You're doing uh, crazy things. Very inspiring. Yeah. It's great. Thanks for having me, man. Too bad. It. Too bad the uh, the tiny house thing didn't work out here in Chattanooga. Yeah. But maybe. Oh, it's going to. I mean, it's gonna happen. Just a matter. Of time. I'm still. So I've I've got my full contractor's license now, and I'm actually not with Wind River anymore. Yeah. I'm, um, I started my own company, Atypical Design Build. Um, and so I'm I'm doing um, right right now mainly remodel work, but the plan is to do more permanent foundations, small form permanent foundations building mm-hmm. in this area. So. I mean, it's the dreams. The stream's alive. It's just taking longer. Do you got a website people can look you up at? No, I will. I will. It'll be atypicaldesignbuild.com for that. Um, I have a personal website that I, um, if you go right now, you're not going to find much, but soon there will be a podcast up on that website and a blog started in, in concert with the podcast. That's just jeremyweaver.com because um, I'm starting my own podcast as well, inspired by the likes of you, Mr. Swab. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, so yeah, but, but like, and if you wanted to, if you wanted to find me or, or talk to me on social media or whatever, I'm Jer Weave pretty much everywhere. J E R W E A V E at Instagram, Facebook, and, um, Twitter. Those are my most active would be Twitter or Instagram probably. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a treat. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Cool, man. All right. Bye. And there you have it, Jeremy Weaver, the most knowledgeable guy on tiny house building code that I know, and possibly in America. Super interesting guy, crazy story, how he's really, um, how would you say this, uh, been intentional about his life and what he wants to do. I think that's something that we all can learn from. That's really cool. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, once again, uh, please leave me a rating on Apple podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher and tell your friends if you enjoy the show, word of mouth is always great. So until next time, bye.